Over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic. Before the dark times. Before the Empire. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Wars Retrospective Series. This will be a day long remembered. Hosted by Arnie. I should have expected to find you holding Vader's leash. I recognized your foul stench when I was brought on board. Stuart. <laughs> Don't you call me a mindless philosopher, you overweight glob of grease. And Jacob. You are part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. You must learn the ways of the Force if you're to come with me to Alderaan. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as they review another Star Wars film leading up to the new film, Episode 7, The Force Awakens. I think it is time we demonstrated the full power of this station. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers. I have a very bad feeling about this. Listener discretion is advised. Are oh, your highness, we will discuss the location of your hidden rebel base. Today we're discussing Star Wars, starring Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Peter Cushing, Alec Guinness, directed by George Lucas. This is Arnie, the now-playing co-host who can feel the force flowing through him. Wait, that's probably just the macchiato I drank. <laughs> Stuart in L.A. And rounding out this wretched hive of scum and villainy, it's Jacob. Star Wars. This is it, guys. I don't know that there's a bigger franchise for now-playing to cover. I honestly don't know if there's a single movie franchise that has more behind-the-scenes information. These original movies, Empire and Jedi, have not one but two making-of books. There's all the features, bonus features on every release. This is my saga. I know, I finally feel like I can understand you guys whenever you digress and talk about, oh, it's just like the Quadrazant from the Galifian. I'm going to know what that is now. It's Stuart in L.A. I have seen Star Wars before. I don't hate Star Wars. I just haven't thought about it in 20 years. And so I'm as close to a newbie as you're going to get. I checked, and the last time I watched this movie, it was because my roommate at the time pulled out the laser discs. He was so mad about the theatrically re released digital versions that when the new movie was coming, Phantom Menace, he wanted to see it as it truly was. And I sat there and watched all three films with him. I'd say that was what, 98, 99, something like that. And have not seen the movies since. Never have seen the digital tweaking. But Star Wars has some love for me. I mean, it is the first movie I remember ever going to a movie theater and seeing. I saw it with my dad and my brother. It has a special place. But this is a, a long journey home. 
Man, don't make me tear up. This is the first movie I remember seeing. I, it's such a vivid memory. Now, I was born in 77, so I obviously didn't see it during the theatrical release, but they would release it year after year. And I remember being at probably five years old, visiting my grandfather in Sherman Oaks, and some of my cousins were there. We were all around the same age. I remember walking to the movie theater with all of them. We watched this movie. I remember sitting in that theater watching this and then walking home. And my grandfather, you, you know, those, you don't see a lot of them nowadays, but they mailboxes on the corner, those blue mailboxes, and he would pretend they were R2 and he was C-3PO and try to talk to him like the number one memory of my grandfather and it all goes back to Star Wars for me but I feel like this is therapy for me I had this contentious relationship that I've struggled with since the prequels came out and I've had a hard time reconciling my love for the originals with those prequels and I felt like I had to move away because I wanted to love these films and what Lucas started releasing with the Clone Wars and all that it was hurting my love for the franchise so I feel like this is a reconciliation I'm gonna lay down on the couch and really work through my feelings with this franchise and try to rediscover that love that I have for these original films. And me? Listen, I've played the fan on many now-playing retrospectives. With Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah, I cosplayed as Freddy for the theater one time. Star Trek, yeah, I owned every novel and had my walls plastered with Picard and Worf, sure, okay. Marvel movies, yeah, yeah, I collect some toys and I read some comics, but Star Wars... If I'm a fan of the other franchises, I think I just have to admit I'm a fanatic about Star Wars. I have three Star Wars tattoos. I grew up watching them. I did see the original in theaters in 77. I was three and have no memory of it, but my parents took me. One of my very first movie memories is seeing Empire in Chicago at a very nice theater. I watched Star Wars every day after school for years. I had the toys then. I have the toys now. If it wasn't for Star Wars, we would not be here at all. There would be no now playing without Star Wars. Ten years ago last month, I started my first podcast, Star Wars Action News, over at SWActionNews.com, the first podcast dedicated to Star Wars collecting. And that's how I met Jacob. Jacob did segments for that. Yeah, I definitely, even if this had gone, I wouldn't be around if there's no Star Wars action news. If now playing somehow sprung to life without that, no, I wouldn't know you guys. I know you guys because of Star Wars. That's how I first met Arnie and then eventually met Stuart. So yeah, this is a big deal. And that podcast, it has led to so many things that led to now playing. It led to me writing an article that's on newsstands now for Movie Magic Magazine. I've run the Star Wars Fan Charity Breakfast for five consecutive years at San Diego Comic-Con. I have gone across the country and even to Germany to talk about Star Wars and Star Wars collecting. I've met and interviewed Samuel L. Jackson. I met George Lucas. I've had... Brief conversations with Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Anthony Daniels. I've had really in-depth conversations with some of the other actors. I cannot wait to talk about Watto in episode one. I got some stories. (laughs) I have interviewed nearly every Star Wars novelist who was published between 2005 and now. And I even started my first book podcast that I love so much that I couldn't continue. I just, I became Kubrick about it. The shows just got polished and polished. Yeah, legendary. I have 
in the can probably 30 episodes of the Star Wars Action News Book Club. Only five episodes were released because only five were of the quality that I felt the show deserved. But I've interviewed Alan Dean Foster, the novelist who wrote the Star Wars novelization. Yeah, it says by George Lucas, Alan Dean Foster wrote every word. I've interviewed Don Glute, who was a friend of Lucas's in college and wrote the Empire Strikes Back novelization. I got stories. I've, for fun, read every making of for these movies. I've watched every documentary. This is the first now playing retrospective. I don't have to do the research. I've lived it. But you didn't want to do the research. Why, Artie? Like, I get all this excitement off of you, but you were so hesitant to ever do this franchise on now playing. Fans were begging for it, and you, I mean, go to the forums. There you are. No, we will never do Star Wars. Why were you so hesitant to do this? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, I have talked for over 500 hours on Star Wars Action News about Star Wars plus the book club, plus guest appearances on other podcasts, plus I did Republic Forces Radio Network. A, what haven't I said about Star Wars yet that you couldn't go to the other podcast to listen to? I said, if you want to hear me review Star Wars, come over to Star Wars Action News. I'm talking about it every week. The other thing is, how can I possibly condense a lifetime of thoughts on Star Wars into one movie review, into one now-playing episode? I don't know that I can. But second, I consider myself to be... A discerning Star Wars fan. I call myself a fanatic, but... <laughs> I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> I can call a spade a spade. One time when Star Wars was first being aired on Spike, Spike had the exclusive license to air the saga, and I decided to live tweet it for Star Wars Action News. I know these movies aren't perfect. I love them dearly, but... It's 70s technology. We're going to talk about what Lucas did with the special editions. Mark Hamill. There's a reason he's never won an acting award. So when tweeting, I tried to be funny and point out what I think we all lovingly know to be the flaws of Star Wars. And I quickly discovered Star Wars fans can be very sensitive to criticism <laughs> about their favorite franchise. I think we've experienced, like, uh, James Bond, huge, crazy fans. You guys were critical of some of those. I mean, it happens Marvel. It happens with every series. But I get why you may be a little worried because, yeah, we're going to be critical. We have to be. That's why we're here on Now Playing. Yeah, I'd like to always remind people that we are first and foremost, on this podcast anyway, movie reviewers. We're here to talk about the movie. Yeah, exactly. I think that one can be a discerning fan, and we're definitely going to be testing that with the new Disney movies. The Disney movies? <laughs> yes. I, I think we'll test it before then. We got some Ewok adventures, yeah. we got the Clone Wars animated movie. Don't tell me that's a green arrow. <laughs> Wilfred Brimley and some Ewoks? Come on. I haven't seen it in a long time. We'll get there. But one of the things that did change my mind is there's that I want to do right to the listeners of Now Playing by doing this franchise, but I didn't want to burn any bridges. There was a period where my biggest fear were some people taking clips out of context and playing them for my friends. I see. You thought they would smear you with your own words and say you are less of a fan than you feel you are. Yeah, it's happened before. Clips from Star Wars Action News have been re-edited to make me look bad, so I was a little bit nervous about it. 
Wow. And I feel like I've kind of set myself up as a skeptic saying this is therapy for me, but I do want to call out, like, after the prequels, like, I was a Lucas apologist, meaning I was trying to defend those, like, fervently, like, no, this is why Jar Jar is a critical character, and, like, I wanted to defend the franchise. I didn't want people to think bad about it because, again, going back to these first three films, so pivotal, like, always something in the background in my life is always one of those, like, pillars, like, oh, yeah, Jacob, he's into Star Wars, he's into punk, like, it was always, like, one of those things you could describe me with. So I've had this tenuous relationship with it because of the prequel but it is something I dearly love and I want to feel good about and and that's why I'm glad I'm on this show so I could really sit here and reconcile it and defend the things that I think can be defended and those things that can't, well, we'll discuss them. So I think those who have an open mind and I'm definitely going in here with an open mind because I want to reconcile with this franchise and, and feel good about it and not be so bitter when we get to Stinky the Hut. <laughs> so I, I think people that listen to us with an open mind and kind of put their fanaticism to the side a little bit, they'll find we're being fair. A question up top. Is this your favorite film then? I know that it's important as a lifestyle choice, for lack of a better phrase, <laughs> but is this the best movie in your opinion? No. I mean, I understand this film has flaws. There are better made films this film especially no matter which version you look at the 77 version some of those effects i mean they were groundbreaking for the time may not hold up 97 the effects certainly don't hold up so is this the best film of all time no is this the most important film of all time maybe other than the very first film, like Grand Train Robbery, or the very first talkie, or the very first color film, I think Star Wars is that important to blockbuster culture, to special effects films. Lucas used the Star Wars films not just to make films and tell stories, but to promote technologies that he would then patent and sell. Lucas made billions. It wasn't on ticket sales. It was on technology. The prequels are a huge example of this. We'll talk about it when we get there. Is it my favorite film? Yeah, I think it is. I really do. I hate saying favorite because on any given day that could change. What am I looking for? Sure. But this is a movie that I watched every day after school when I was in my single digits. There was that period where Star Wars kind of died from like 84 to 90. Yeah, you watch Grease after school, too. I mean, I I think that you remember it a certain way, but I guess I remember the He-Man years. I remember the Voltron years. I remember you liking a lot of things, and me, too. So it was a surprise to really, I don't think I realized you were the Star Wars guy until, yeah, your wedding, I think, is where it really occurred to me. When you were putting on your Jedi robe, Stuart? (laughs) Is that when it occurred? There's stories. We're going to talk about them. We'll get there when it's appropriate. Stewart has stories that I dragged him into, but what really happened is it was a childhood love, but it was 91, 92, 93 that things came back. Star Wars came back. They brought back the novels, and I wasn't going to read them because I'd read all those Star Trek novels and none of them mattered. Why would I go down that same path? They were coming out with Star Wars video games, and I was playing them, the X-Wing game for PC, and it reinvigorated my love. You knew what I watched after school as a child. What you don't even know to this day is throughout my college years, I had a weekly ritual. Sunday was Star Wars Day. 
my roommates and I would all gather in a room and watch the entire trilogy. It was usually on one of the HBO stations we had. We didn't even watch them in order sometimes. Sunday was Star Wars Day for four years, and I was getting more into it. So it was everything building up to it. And if the fandom I had in my childhood was some dying embers, the 90s stoked it back to flames, and the new movies became a roaring wildfire that runs to this day. Yeah, I mean, I remember like you, Arnie, in the 90s, didn't they come out with like a VHS set finally in the 90s that was supposed to be cleaned up? And I remember buying those and that's when I started really getting back into it. Yeah, they did the THX remixes. There are so many versions of Star Wars. (laughs) So many. I mean, the one that played in 77 is different from the re-release they did a couple years later. Yes. And then in the 90s, they did the THX remasters where they brought the video quality to VHS level and did a (laughs) sound cleanup. And then there's the special editions. And then they changed the special editions for the DVD editions. Then they changed them for the Blu-ray editions. And then they changed them for the digital release editions. And I want to be clear, there's websites out there that detail every difference in the special edition. We're not going to do that here. You can go to those sites. You can watch YouTube videos of the scenes side by side. We're going to call out the big differences that matter to us, but we are not going to be going, oh, in this scene, the TIE fighter did a barrel roll, but in the original, it just strafed. These films are works in progress. George Lucas is fond of saying art is never complete, only abandoned, and he refused to abandon it until he sold it to Disney. And then even then, I'm not so sure. But George Lucas, I mean, Star Wars came out in 77. Lucas was this quirky guy. He'd done THX 1138. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Oh, yeah. It's very different. Like, you would not watch Star Wars in THX 1138 and think they were the same director. THX, it's just a very 70s, very dark and a different vibe, a different kind of filmmaker. He doesn't care about story in that film, I feel. It's just like, it's about the sound, it's about the visuals, it's a real weird story going on, but I like it on its own merits. Yeah, it's a student film, is honestly the way it feels to me. It's a student film with Robert Duvall in it. It's a lot of bald white people staring at white walls. I mean, it's it's arty. You just have to kind of remember the culture it came out of, that hippie art cinema culture of the late 60s, early 70s. That was what kids were into, is where they could go to watch sex on screen. And it was kind of the gathering place for the hip. And so this was, yeah, Lucas trying to stay with the crowd. He wasn't cultivating the sci-fi universe he would become famous for. That's for sure. And that was my question to you guys. You guys love Star Wars so much. How much have you seen this one? How many times have you seen American Graffiti? Once and once. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen THX 1138 once when they did a special edition of it. Yeah, which is weird because you have like these mutants that are like just little people, but then they throw in some CGI ones that look like monkeys. No. It's very confusing. <laughs> yeah. He did not go back and CGI THX 1138. He did it. Because he can. <gasps> did he do it with American Graffiti? No, no. <laughs> but you have to remember, this is how Lucas sees himself, is as this avant-garde student filmmaker who wasn't really out to make mainstream films. THX 1138, I think if you were to see the most pure representation of Lucas on celluloid, it's that movie. Wow. American Graffiti, I've seen that movie a number of times. I really enjoy it. I saw it before I even knew he directed it. I saw it back in high school. No, my dad got me to sit through that because he's like, no, it's the Star Wars guy who directed it. You'll like it. No, not as a kid. (laughs) I did it. 
Yeah, you know, that's the thing about Lucas, is I think that he is the most backward-looking futurist we have. Although he's thought of as a sci-fi guy and a tech guy that's really you know, pushed the envelope in terms of cinema technology, all of his movies feel very retro. THX 1138 is the only one that doesn't feel like it was drenched in nostalgia. But American Graffiti, obviously about his childhood. Star Wars... Obviously, about the movies that he watched growing up. Well, this all came from Francis Ford Coppola. Coppola and Lucas, they're great friends to this day. After American Graffiti, Lucas was kind of bouncing from project to project, and Coppola challenged Lucas to make something really mainstream, to not do something so personal, to try to basically see if he could write a blockbuster. And he wrote the blockbuster that begat all blockbusters other than Jaws. It's funny you bring up Coppola. I didn't know they were friends. I think of them in the same way in that, yeah, they're kind of film school geek guys that got lucky, that probably shouldn't have been major motion picture directors. Their visions were much more strange and adult than their reputation leads you to believe. But yeah, much like Godfather changed Coppola, I guess that's why he was putting the challenge to Lucas, that he was like, see, if I can do it, you can do it. You know, and I think it's, this is all thanks to the 70s. I think I'm getting what you love about the 70s, Stuart. It, it was a time where you could really experiment, I think, with cinema. And maybe Star Wars was the end of that experimentation because it said, hey, make stuff really mainstream and make a ton of money. But yeah, I feel like if you didn't have this time in cinema where you could really do things different and take some of these risks, we wouldn't have this film. Well, admittedly, this didn't start as a original film. Lucas was really trying to get his studio, United Artists, to get the rights for Flash Gordon. Ah. He wanted Flash Gordon the movie. I knew that had to be an influence here. I mean, it's an obvious one. I, I take no pleasure in, in announcing that. I mean, I, we all can see. Oh, he said it too. Yeah, it's a movie serial. I mean, the, by starting it with episode four, you got to believe there was no episodes one, two, and three. He was just recapturing that feeling of walking to a cinema back in the 40s and 50s and just being caught in the middle of a story you've never seen before and instantly wanting to be a part of it. Well, there was no episode four originally. Yeah, that was added in the re-release oh. in theaters in the 70s when they knew they were doing Empire. Yeah, because I don't think there's a 77 version of this film available. Maybe Lucas has one in his vault. I am watching the closest I can get to the original releases. You know, on one of those DVD, the last DVD release, as an extra, they threw in a disc. Like, they didn't clean up the film at all, but they have the laser disc transfers. And, th and that's what I watched, but they still have a new hope on those. Yeah, but it doesn't say episode four. And those were all later editions. He was tweaking even back then. But when he did start, he didn't put episode one. He did put episode four and decided Empire was five. I was wondering when it all started to become A New Hope. I remember having that fight in college. People were like, it's A New Hope. I'm like, no, it's not. I've never heard of that in my life. I still have a problem calling it that. It's To me, it is still Star Wars, but I do have this like comedic conversation with my dad every time we try to discuss Star Wars because he's like, okay, so you're talking about the first one. I'm like, no, I'm talking about episode four. But he's like, that's the first one that came. It's like this whole <laughs> who's on first routine. And... Notice, when I opened this, I refused to say today we're discussing Star Wars A New Hope. When I grew up, it was Star Wars, Empire, and Jedi, and that's what they are. Now, though, because I immerse myself into this universe of Star Wars, when I'm talking to Star Wars people, I can't just say, I watched Star Wars. I have to say, I watched A New Hope. I have to say, I watched The Phantom Menace. So, I will use that nomenclature with my peeps, 
but I won't use it in day-to-day life. Good. I'll let you know when you start talking gibberish in Jawa or whatever, and I can't understand you. But yeah, New Hope, that was a new one for me in the 90s. To me, it's always been Star Wars with nothing tacked on after that. And this thing went through development hell. I cannot summarize what J.W. Rensler, a man I've had the pleasure of interviewing multiple times, he's done some amazing making of books. They're available for Kindle. I know we try to not reproduce IMDb trivia. I'll bring up a few special points like the Flash Gordon thing, but man, those books are worth a read for anyone who wants to know the true genesis. I can't believe Lucasfilm, with Lucas's approval, made books that told this telling of these movies and didn't whitewash it. This was a big question I had watching Star Wars this time. He always had in mind that there was going to be more than the story that's contained in this movie. There was always going to be a wider universe with more stories. He knew that Darth Vader was Luke's father. Uh, Before you answer that, Arnie, I am just going to say, I want to go on the record. I don't believe almost anything Lucas says. I think he is whitewashed this history so much and has created this whole myth. I mean, he's going to talk about the hero with a thousand faces and how he tapped into myth. I think he has created a myth about the development of this whole story. All right. I'll tell you that's true, Jacob. When he wrote this film, he was not thinking of Campbellian archetypes. He was thinking of Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. Yeah, I think Kurosawa was a big influence. I recently saw a picture of him and Francis Ford Coppola. They visited Kurosawa on the set, I believe, of Kagemusha. But yeah, I see Hidden Fortress when I watch this. I see Seven Samurai. We're going to have seven heroes. And so you think Seven Samurai. I do think, you know, you say all those Mace Window was leader of the blah, blah, blah. It it all sounds very Japanese influence. I see Darth Vader. I see samurai armor. I, I do feel like that is something he was tapping into as well. Yeah. But to go back to your original question, did Lucas know he was going to be making sequels way off into the future? Not necessarily, but his original Star Wars script was so massive and couldn't possibly be budgeted, couldn't possibly be told in one movie. What he's said many times, and I'll go with his story on this, is he chopped it into three acts and decided he was going to tell the first act as the first movie, and he still knew where his other scripts went, he still had ideas of where it could go, and when he signed the deal with 20th Century Fox, this is really key, Fox owns Star Wars, the first movie. Lucasfilm then owned all the rest because Lucas put in the contract any sequels he would own and he could self-finance or work with whoever he wanted to. He made enough to finance it himself. He took all his profit from Star Wars, self-funded Empire. Yeah, he also had the merchandising rights, which was a brilliant idea at the time. Yeah, because only Planet of the Apes had toys back then and those didn't do so well. So... While Disney bought Lucasfilm, Disney owns Empire all the way through Revenge of the Sith and whatever goes forward, Star Wars is still owned by Fox. So he had sequels in mind, he knew the script was too big, he was a savvy negotiator, but did he know right off the bat this was episode 4? Not necessarily. Did he know Vader was Luke's father? According to Don Glute, the answer is yes. Because shortly after Star Wars came out, Glute had a dinner in a public restaurant with his college friend, and Lucas was saying quite loudly at a dinner table, Vader was Luke's father, we were going to find all this out in the sequels, yada, yada, yada. It is telling that Darth Vader does live at the end of this. He flies off into space. You would think, if this is my one shot, I'm going to tell this complete story. Yeah, you kill the main bad guy, but no, here he does not die. So that does make me tend to believe that, yeah, maybe he had something plotted out. 
I did try to look at this movie in this viewing without the extended universe. Forget my childhood, forget my dad, forget the toys, forget the sequels, forget all of it, and just try to see the movie as one self-contained story. And yeah, I agree with you, Jacob. It is a interesting choice that the villain is not defeated. There are implications for what they do later, but I don't know that I would have seen them. Honestly, I couldn't remember the plot of this movie going in. I played a game with myself. I asked myself, say everything you remember about this movie before I hit play and see how much is right at the end of it. I wanted to know what I could know from a story as opposed to just warm childhood memories and playing with action figures and what have you. So, oh dear God, if I tried to do that, it would start with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> Star Wars Episode Four, A New he Hope. He would do the script, yes. <laughs> it is a period of civil war, rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have run their first victory against the evil galactic empire. I mean, is that where you went? Uh, not quite, but I think this might be helpful for you guys. Yeah, you guys have all the knowledge here, but the one thing you can't ever know is what someone like me thinks about a movie they saw this long ago. And so maybe this will be helpful. I've jotted all these things down. Here is every single thing I could remember about Star Wars in one big stream of conscious paragraph. All right, you ready? (laughs) All right, yes. So here's what Star Wars meant to me before I hit play. The big credit scroll, the John Williams music, Leia is a hologram coming out of R2 to warn Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. Tatooine is a sand planet. Luke lives there with his uncle. He collects trash from Jawas who have droids. (laughs) R2 is trying to find him. Sand bad guys burn down his house and kill the uncle. I don't know how he gets to space. He goes to a bar. It's playing the Cantina song, and Han shoots first, or in this cut I'm about to watch, Greedo does. They partner for a rescue mission. At some point, Luke is wearing a Stormtrooper outfit. Somehow they end up in a garbage compactor with tentacles. The Millennium Falcon warps into space to escape stormtroopers. I guess Leia tells them about the Death Star at this point. They plan to destroy it before they destroy her homeworld. Lots of aerial jockeying through the Death Star. They have to hit a magic spot to make it go boom. Darth Vader is there with Christopher Lee. (laughs) Christopher Lee? (laughs) That's later, Stuart. (laughs) Yes, he can crush your throat and Obi-Wan dies. I remember that right at the end. Oh, and Obi-Wan dies. And there's a big Olympic medal ceremony. (laughs) Do you remember how he dies? There's a little thing called lightsabers, which are the coolest thing ever. I made no mention in all of this to the force or to lightsabers. So that just tells you. But you knew. I mean, you know me. I have lightsabers. So you knew. But the point is, when I'm thinking about Star Wars, I would say the two biggest iconography, it just completely escaped my memory. I mostly remembered this as the story about a boy who went to space and hung out with cooler people to rescue a princess and blow up a Death Star. I didn't remember the spiritual journey. And I do think that coming back to this movie, that's kind of what this is all about. I mean, watching it again, I mean, we can get into it. Why don't we get to the real plot, the one that's going to correct all my misnomers. But I definitely saw a different movie than I was prepared for when I hit play. So go ahead, Arnie. What's the real story? It is a period of galactic civil war. The evil empire has overthrown the old republic and now rules the galaxy with fear. And with the construction of the Death Star, a space station whose primary laser can destroy an entire planet, their totalitarian, despotic rule can only continue. But before the movie ever begins, a band of rebels scored their first victory against the Empire, 
launching a mission to steal the designs for the Death Star in the hopes of finding a way to destroy it. When the film starts, that group of rebels are fleeing the Imperials, but their ship is boarded, and rebel leader and princess of the planet Alderaan, Leia Organa, played by Carrie Fisher, is taken hostage by Darth Vader, an evil Jedi who works for the Emperor. But before her capture, Leia was able to hide the plans inside a robot, or in Star Wars they're called droids, named R2-D2. He and his companion C-3PO left the ship in an escape pod and land on the desert planet Tatooine, where R2 tries to accomplish his mission, get the plans to Obi-Wan Kenobi, one of the last Jedi Knights in the galaxy, played by Sir Alec Guinness. But the two droids are captured and sold to a family of farmers, including Luke Skywalker, played by Mark Hamill, who works for his aunt and uncle. The Imperials, following the droids, kill Luke's kin, but Luke does get them to Obi-Wan Kenobi, and the four flee the planet with the help of rogue pilot and smuggler Han Solo, played by Harrison Ford, and his seven-foot shaggy co-pilot Chewbacca. On the ship, Obi-Wan begins to train Luke in the Force, the mystical power of the Jedi. The old knight tells Luke his father used to be a powerful Jedi until he was betrayed and murdered by Darth Vader. Obi-Wan hopes to take the plans to Leia's father on Alderaan, but when they arrive, Alderaan has been completely destroyed, a means of torture to make Leia give up the location of the Rebels' secret base. Han, Luke, and the others are captured and taken on board the Death Star, but disguised as Imperial stormtroopers, Han and Luke rescue the princess, while Obi-Wan Kenobi disables the ship's tractor beam and faces off against Darth Vader, his old pupil. The two fight with laser swords, called lightsabers, but Obi-Wan sacrifices himself so Luke, Leia, and the others can escape. They flee to the rebel base, but were tracked by the Imperials who plan to use the Death Star to destroy the Rebellion once and for all. But an analysis of the plans shows the Death Star does have a weakness, a small port that, if hit with a torpedo, will cause a chain reaction and destroy the entire space station. So a group of fighter pilots, including Luke, man their ships to take on the space station, but when they lift off, Han and Chewie aren't with them. Han took his reward for rescuing the princess and left, thinking the Death Star attack to be suicide. With Darth Vader piloting a fighter as well, it seems the Rebels have lost. Most of their ships are destroyed. But Luke remains, and with an unexpected assist from Han, he uses the Force and fires a torpedo right at the target. The Death Star is destroyed, and Luke and Han are heroes of the Rebellion. But Darth Vader escaped unharmed and flies off into a sequel as the credits roll to some triumphant John Williams music. Ah, John Williams, the best performance in the movie. I gotta say, I don't have a whole <laughs> lot of accolades for most of the cast, but the one star of this, I mean, truly the best performance, maybe you'd see of anybody in any movie, John Williams in this movie. His music here helps Lucas with his theme. His whole intent is that words are kind of secondary. Star Wars should always function no matter what language you speak. While there are words there to satisfy plot hounds like us, the entire film should be able to be experienced without a word of dialogue. He wanted them to be like silent movies in that way. And yeah, John Williams' score, so iconic, and I know I use that word with franchises, but it just, it never has been more true than here, came because of a recommendation from Spielberg, thanks to Jaws and several other Spielberg films. And yet, I'm gonna say, this is the worst John Williams score of the saga, because beyond the great opening music and beyond the awesome ceremony music which opened my wedding the middle 
is kind of serviceable with a lot of strings. Da 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 da. You know, it's a. I mean, I've listened to this score 200, 300, 400 times, so I know that he gets more musically rich later. Yeah, you know, he's definitely going to get better, but I love what you're saying here is that, yeah, you don't really need the dialogue. He brings in themes. Each character has their theme. You know, it goes back to, what is that? Peter and the Wolf. I remember watching that old cartoon and it's all just about the music. And this past summer, I watched the Star Wars film with a nine-year-old girl. First time she'd ever seen these films. And she picked up on those musical cues, like right away. Like you'd hear, oh, she's like, oh, that's Darth Vader's theme. He's going to be showing up soon. Like even a child can understand this musically like here's this character they're coming on here here's this person's theme like as we get into the dialogue and, and look it's no secret that Lucas is heavily criticized for his writing it helps that there are these musical cues and that it almost works as an opera I mean this is a space opera and so this music does enhance but I do agree with you Arnie it's going to get better in the sequels and you mentioned the Darth Vader theme I think it's important for people like Stuart who haven't seen this movie in so long to understand that the Darth Vader theme that we know, the Imperial March, da, 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 not in this movie. It was made for the next film. Williams himself has said he wished Lucas would let him rescore this film as one of the many special editions to include it. I heard it. That's the weird thing is that in my yeah. mind, I thought I did hear that. He, he does have his own kind of theme here. I, I noticed it. Like you said, Jacob, it really does teach you sections of the orchestra that different characters have different instruments. You know, Leia's flutes. And yeah, I, I don't think John Williams has met a horn he doesn't like. But yeah, the, <laughs> it, it, it's it's great. I mean, honest to God, I don't love Star Wars, but I love this music here. I love the work that Williams, really, top form. He's a great composer, made many memorable themes. This is the one. Can you imagine this movie without it? I was trying to think of if you went back and rescored this movie without Williams. If you just put in a disco sci-fi score, that would have been more trendy. <laughs> they did do the disco Star Wars stuff after this. And it rocks. Well, no, no, I'm not talking about setting John Williams to a disco beat, that's fun. I'm talking about someone that just says, I'm going to just do the whole thing on Moog Synthesizer. I mean, you could have gone that way. John Carpenter. Yes. Yeah. And what a different film. And didn't Lucas originally score this to classical music as they were doing the dailies and just so everyone could kind of get the vibe and then Williams did the score. So they did play around with the score a little bit. Yeah, he was thinking 2001. You got to keep in mind, that's one of the biggest influences here. A lot of the shots that I've always associated with Star Wars. The opening shot of the yes. ship flying overhead. When we finally reviewed 2001 a couple years ago, when I finally saw that film for the first time, I'm like, damn, Lucas took that. He takes a lot. <laughs> and I never knew. And that had the classical score. It's a great introduction. I love being thrown into the world. I mean, as a kid, I didn't read the credits. I don't think I could read when I yeah. saw this movie. So whatever they were scrolling up, I never paid attention to until this viewing. You're going to get all that exposition again. But it's a throwback to what? Flash Gordon, that, to yes. the serials that Lucas loved. Previously in this movie serial, maybe you didn't come to the theater last week, but this is what you missed. And yeah, I like that as just a mood setter more than 
than anything that the titling actually says. It doesn't matter what it says. It just sets the mood, and the music sets the mood. And yes, when the ships come in in that Kubrickian way from above, that's not the way I would have imagined it to be. But yes, watching this little ship going towards the planet and having this dwarfing triangle pursuing it, it's just great visual storytelling. When I was watching it for this review, I tried to watch it like I didn't know every word in this movie and to see what it would be like. And what I was thinking of is there was an episode of that 70s show that had the group going to Star Wars when it first hit theaters. And when the music starts and then the ships fly overhead, everybody just like is back in their seat like a roller coaster just went down and they're just enthralled. And I got to think that's exactly what this is. This movie would be totally different if it had started like so many movies. Imagine if it started with Luke Skywalker walking around the planet, harvesting some water for his desert planet and doing absolutely nothing. And we get our first bit of action 30 minutes later. It wouldn't work. And in fact, there are a lot of early cut scenes with Luke that were filmed only because Fox mandated you can't wait a half hour to show your hero. Lucas just ended up cutting them all and look how great it is. I think they could have done it. I will just say you couldn't have spent half an hour with this boy, but it would have been a very different movie, a different directing choice. If you started with a kid looking up at the sky, wondering what was up there, setting the anticipation for what space could be, and then later showing us a battle. Yeah, that builds suspense. By doing it this way, it just throws you right into the best stuff of the movie. I mean, the best stuff of this movie is the dogfighting, is the in-space battles. We hadn't had that before. I mean, you mentioned Kubrick. Yes, there are many Kubrickian setups and compositions here, but Kubrick didn't film space as an adventure battle in this way. What we would have thought a, a, a sci-fi battle to look like was revolutionized by this movie. And what an opening. I mean. The way Lucas tells that visual story, there's not a word of dialogue when you see some guys with guns preparing to fight other guys in armor with guns, but you know who the good guys and the bad guys are. It's just told to you that the regular guys in khakis are the good guys and these faceless white armored fighters are the bad guys. Yeah, faceless. That's the thing, that humanity. If you're ever looking at a person, chances are they're pretty good, unless they're, you know, Peter Cushing. And it is Peter Cushing and not Christopher <laughs> Lee. I had forgotten that. I can see why you'd get him confused. They are birds of a feather. Yeah, you know, but which one's got the fangs on this week? <laughs> but yes, I mean, Vader, obviously the most dramatic operatic costume flourish is that, yes, all in black with that helmet that looks, I got to say on this viewing, a little too big for him. And the man behind, I mean, David Prowse, a bodybuilder. I guess we'll actually get to see him when we do Clockwork Orange for our Kickstarter donators. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He's the guy at the house the second time. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, and we saw him in Casino Royale. He was in that uncredited playing Frankenstein's monster. But remember, this was filmed over in London at Elstree Studios. Almost everybody in this movie is British. They brought over Carrie, Harrison, Mark. I think Carrie wants to be British, too, sometimes with that <laughs> accent. I'm not sure what she wants to be now. <laughs> they overdubbed a lot of these actors with Americans, like Uncle Owen, Aunt Beru, and especially Darth Vader. I've seen some of the footage where it was David Prowse speaking and his thick, almost cockney accent. But was that the plan? I mean, James Earl Jones is so iconic as the voice of Vader. Was there a plan to just go with David Prowse? Or to me, it always seems like you got to go for this scary, deep voice. According to Lucas... 
The plan was always to replace him. James Earl Jones didn't want the job, but took it on the promise he wouldn't be credited. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, why would you want to be credited with Star Wars? It was a risk back then. I get that. It was. But they also planned on replacing the voice of C-3PO. Lucas hated this effeminate, prissy Anthony Daniels voice, and he was going to replace him. The original concept was C-3PO is supposed to be a slick 1970s used car salesman. But by the time filming was done, Lucas was so enamored with how Daniels had played it, he kept that. But Prowse, according to Prowse, he thought his voice was going to be used, and he was kind of angry when he went into theaters and heard James Earl Jones. Uh, yeah, but they got the guy because he's tall and he's built and he can hang in that suit for hours at a time under hot lights. Yeah, someone's got to be able to wear that suit. I don't think they got him because he had a great voice. I mean, that wouldn't make sense. Maybe he does have a great voice. I can't remember it from Clockwork Orange, but he's physical. He's a big physical actor and that's what they go with here. I, It's obvious now. I, I feel a little bit silly, but Stormtrooper. World War II. That's what they're going for here. The helmets, all of that. This is an extrapolation of a war movie. This is Star Wars. I get it. I didn't really remember it that way, but this would have been like a World War II movie that Lucas watched as a kid. Maybe part of the reason why this is a popular movie in 1977 is at the tail end of Vietnam, like we didn't want war films. We didn't want to reflect on our ass getting kicked. This was a war film you could get behind. It forgot about Vietnam. It went back to the good war and it put it in space where it felt exciting and fresh. And yeah, there was just no misery. I think of so many films from the 70s being about wallowing in misery and depression and and flawed human characters. And there's none of that here. This is a classic good and evil struggle. And that had to be a part of its mass appeal was that it just took away the ambiguities of war. Yeah, I remember my dad just talking about cinema in the 70s when I was younger and we're talking about Star Wars and that was one of the things he would say. He's like, the 70s, they were just so down their movies. They're so depressing. He had Rocky come along. He had Star Wars come along. He's like, I think people are just ready to feel good again. We'd gone through Vietnam and we were trying to feel good about ourselves again and these were uplifting movies. Yeah, they were black and white. They were easy to understand. There was no ambiguity there. And yet, I think there are some flourishes here that wouldn't have happened at any time other than the 70s. Oh, no, definitely. This is a 70s film. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this is what's been called a lived-in universe. Robots weren't all perfect and shiny. C-3PO has a giant dent in his forehead, and he's tarnished, and the fact that the ships are kind of run down, and the Millennium Falcon is described as a hunk of junk, you know, it is kind of like the Great Depression going into the war. Everybody's scraping to get by except for the military machine. So I think there's that. And yet, yes, it is a very basic story. Lucas calls this a kid's film. There is not that ambiguity right now. The closest we get to ambiguous is Han Solo. Yeah. And I think that's why he becomes a character we really gravitate. Later, he wakes the movie up because a lot of this, I'm engaged because it's exciting visually, but I'm not engaged with the struggle, trying to figure out who's a good guy or not. You know, it's it's important to Vader. He's going around choking people. I love, never ask people questions while you got your hand around their throat. They're not going to be able to tell you. But he's trying to figure out who got the plans or what. I never paid attention to that. I just knew that it was exciting and watching droids get away in the escape pod was fun. Even more amusing, they're not sure what the plans convey. They're like, if they can find our weak spot in it, if we have one. Like, you don't know? You're in a building that you don't know how it was designed? 
Well, they never planned. They say it at the end. They never really planned on a small-scale attack. They figured you'd bring huge ships against it, not a little one-man pilot ship. Haven't you ever been in a business meeting where the guy who's the project manager or the project leader is boasting about how perfect his project is? That's what that is. That's exactly what that is, (laughs) is a guy going, there's absolutely no weakness. I designed this thing. My people did it. And they only want yes men around them. Yeah, Yeah, I get it. Captain of the Titanic. We've seen many examples of hubris and all, but it's just kind of funny. They're like, if there is this thing that they could use it against us. I'm like, oh, there is. There definitely is. Maybe you should to work better on the design of this thing. Stuart, this is not Asimov writing science fiction. This is a space opera. This is supposed to feel mythic. So there's little lines here and there that stand out as weird, just logical inconsistencies in the storytelling. How they power this Death Star to fly around the galaxy. Like, I can't imagine this Death Star going into light speed to get like to a distant part of the galaxy to blow something up. But I'm going to go with it because that is the universe Lucas has created. And you say space opera. I say space fantasy. You've got a princess who's taken hostage. You've got knights coming to rescue her. Yeah, this is the level we're operating at. This is not intended to be a techno thriller. And I think that's really a shocker for someone like me that is less familiar with the world than you guys are, is that, yeah, there's no science in this science fiction. Typically, you know, in any given movie that takes us to outer space, we explore the technology And they do here, but they keep it at a level that feels very tech light. Like, I don't feel like there is science to support why these things are. We believe them in faith. And in fact, the whole idea of this movie is that beyond the Death Star, I mean, Darth Vader's got a great rebuke to somebody that's like, I'm not impressed with this Death Star. The, The real power is the force. The real power is the stuff that binds people on a magic deity level. I mean, I think that what is surprising about watching Star Wars is that, yes, there is not a lot of science in it. It's all about faith and belief. Yeah, I think this is the rift between people into Star Trek and people into Star Wars. Those into Star Trek, they want the science and Mm -hmm. they don't see Star Wars as being science fiction. It's just, it's fantasy fiction. It's a stark contrast and I get the rift. I mean, I think you can appreciate both and J.J. Abrams apparently does, but... No, he only likes Star Wars. (laughs) It's pretty clear. That's why I like his Star Trek films. Yeah, Yeah, I I get it. I think there's room for both, but it was a surprise. It was a revelation for me to realize how little of that is here. Even though they have amazing gadgets and things, and, and things feel really well thought out, they're all powered by kid brain fantasy. I mean, literally a child could come up with all of these concepts. What's so weird is this is so 70s when the droids get down to Tatooine. Like, you think if this was made today, the droids would get down to Tatooine, Luke would be like cruising around and bump into him and then, hey guys, come with me. And like, we get into the story. No, the droids, they're going to separate, then they're going to get picked up by Jawas. And you do this whole roundabout way for them to get to the protagonist. It, It feels very 70s where you kind of just want to linger and look at the landscape and take your time. Like, I don't think that would work today if they were doing this kind of film. Just younger audiences wouldn't go for that. But I'm taking all this in. As a kid, I took it all in. Looking at these Jawas, seeing R2 get shot and taken away and just listening to the sounds in that Jawa sandcrawler. And this is where I love the fact that Lucas is a nerd. I mean, he's quite obviously a nerd that he created all 
all of this and it's not necessary to the story no but man does it round out this universe that there's both jawas and sand people little dudes in brown robes and big dudes in light brown robes i mean <laughs> it's just so exciting this movie is one that starts with a kick of action slows down a little bit with little percussive bits of action when r2 is shot and luke is attacked by a sand person and then once they blast their way out of tatooine this movie doesn't stop it is go 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 and i think that's why it enthralls me as a kid and why I think it works for so many people. It doesn't have long talky bits. I think that helps. I also think that, you know, we keep saying that Luke is the main character. Of course he is. He's the one with the hero's journey. I don't think he's anyone's favorite character. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm sure I'm wrong about that. As a child, I was all about Luke. I dressed up as Luke because he got the laser sword, and that's the coolest weapon. Now, no, I want to be Han Solo. He's the cool one yeah. when you get older. But as a child, no, you want to be Luke as a child. I know many people who Luke is still their favorite character because he's the one they looked up to as a kid. Is he the most interesting character? Actually, he might be based upon his entire journey and the things that happen later on. I think he becomes more interesting while Han becomes less. Yeah, sequels do change the way I feel about him. But in this movie, if there were no others, it's kind of weird that he's the guy. You know, it's happenstance. I thought R2 went looking for Luke. I thought that he was important and R2 knew to get the plans to him. Not at all. It is complete happenstance that the Jawas sell him to this kid. Again, to me, this is the 70s. Like, we are just going to take our time, get into the story here. No, they're going to buy another robot, and that's going to break down, and they're going to return it and get the right robot that they're supposed to have and team up with C-3PO. It, it, I will say this first hour, yes, the second hour, Arnie, it kicks off. This first hour, as an adult that has seen this so many times, and I know the scenery, it tends to lag a little bit, but there is so much visually going on. It is fun to watch. It reminds me of Westerns. I mean, this is the Western portion. Uh, that he's some kid on the ranch who wants to, you know, go off to the big city. Like I said, I could imagine a movie that starts with him and we build up anticipation for what could be awaiting him when he blasts off. I think that would be a good movie. It's not this movie, but I think it could have gone that way and it might have made me a little more in line with Luke. I don't ever really care about Luke. I mean, I get that he's got the story arc here and yeah, as a character that's new to all the things things are explained to him. He's interesting as a character in that way, but I don't need his whole backstory here. And he is our viewpoint character because until we get to him, we have no clue what the hell's going on. We just see robots and laser beams and all this. But Stuart, I specifically wanted to know to you, did you realize what he wants to be as a TIE fighter pilot? I mean, he wants to go to the academy and yeah. learn to be a pilot for the military. I mean, isn't that the Empire? My sense is that he just wants to get off the farm. I don't know that he's political. It doesn't seem like he really has an allegiance to rebels or Empire. But I did question. You're right, Arnie. What does that mean? Did you want to go fight for the bad guys? Yeah, he does say it's all such a long way from here. He doesn't think about that other than a fantasy of fighting. And later, he's going to meet some friends, and they're fighting with the rebels. So it could go either way. It's nebulous on purpose. Well, yeah. One of those cutscenes did have Luke with his friend Biggs on Tatooine. Biggs confesses he graduated, and he's going to desert the Empire and join the rebels because he sees 
firsthand what the Empire has done. And that explains why later on, when Luke is so excited to see Biggs, and that's a reinserted scene in the special edition is their reunion, it's because it would have made a lot more sense had we seen him earlier. But Jacob, you mentioned the stormtroopers looking for the droids. Look, sir, droids. I do love that line. They, they find a washer and they know what they're looking for right away. Here's one of the first big changes in the special edition. I mean, there have been changes thus far. Yeah, they've improved the effects of like the jets or whatever on the ship so they look better. And the sand crawler actually moves right and things. And the biggest compliment I can give the special edition, they went back to the original negative and digitally restored it so that it looks good. I watched both versions. I watched the Blu-ray edition, and then I watched that DVD Laserdisc transfer, and the colors are so muddied and the images so yeah. blurry, they cleaned it up and made every film frame look gorgeous. Feelings aside about whoever shot first, if you just want to see a, a real beautiful look in print, the closest you are going to get is that Blu-ray or the DVD special edition version. They do look great. But at the cost of adding cartoon lizards to the Luxor <laughs> droid scene... Oh, and yeah. my question, so what would I have seen in the original one? There were no lizards? No, there was a lizard here, way off in the distance because it didn't yeah. move. The puppet yeah. didn't work. So they did like a very long shot and you heard the roar. The same sounds are in this one, Oh, but it was just really far off. Yeah, I'm going to get this out of the way right now. I don't have a problem with any tweaking that's done in this movie. I think, yeah, it, you can tell when they're doing really digitally stuff. I mean, I wasn't sure. Sometimes when he like he's looking up at two suns, I'm like, well, was that always there? I don't know. Oh, yeah. Come on. That's iconic. I didn't remember it. Hell, I didn't remember lightsabers. I'm telling you, people <laughs> don't always remember the fine details here. I wasn't sure about all the effects, but it's really obvious when they have a CGI character do doing some comedy bits. I mean, that's obvious when it's in here. I don't have a problem with it. I actually think that if you're going to tie it to the new movies and say that this came after episodes one through three, then this is appropriate. This is the way to see it. Otherwise, it's going to feel really retro. For the most part, I think the movie looks really good. I didn't object to seeing the digital wankery. I think that the CGI has dated really badly on people. Like, the Dubak looks okay, but the person riding the Dubak is like Anaconda bad CGI. It just doesn't move right. I knew it in 97. I know it even more. This special edition now is almost as old as the original was when the special edition came out. And CGI, we talked about with Jurassic Park. It just doesn't age all that well. Yeah, I agree. It feels comparative. To, it looks a little better than what was in Lost World. And some of those Lost World effects were bad. But they did a lot of cleanup where they really made a lot of changes is with the spaceships and the fights. Having watched both back to back and watching them all so many times. Yeah, he made some stuff more exciting. And then he also did stuff that didn't need to be like cluttering up the Luxor droid scene and cluttering up when Luke goes into the city eventually with Ben. Now, Obi-Wan, this is something that really I was also looking at with this. Lucas demands that Star Wars be presented episodes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Disney may change that. I know a lot of millennials who have never seen any Star Wars film. None. 
People now approaching their 30s who have never seen a Star Wars movie. They didn't get into the prequels because they didn't have a love for the original, and so nothing made them go see those movies when they came out. But if you came in completely blank, I don't think The Phantom Menace is the film to watch because you'd be confused if you didn't know what a lightsaber is, what a Jedi is, all the powers. Lucas does not explain that in part one. It all comes when we meet Obi-Wan Kenobi. He explains the Jedi. He explains the Force. He sets the rules for this galaxy. It may seem whimsical and fantastical, but there are rules. And this scene is vital to your understanding of the franchise. Yeah, you get everything here. Okay, the for a thousand generations, Jedi's were keepers of the peace. You know, the Force is this energy field that flows through all things. It surrounds us, penetrates us, and binds us. Like, you get all these basic things. They're going to try to really tell us what the Force is when we get to Phantom Menace, but it's so simple here. Like, a child could literally understand it. I understood what the Force was as a kid. It was just like magic all around us. I definitely knew this movie took inspiration from Flash Gordon. If I had thought about it, I would have thought about War. World War II movies and Lawrence of Arabia. I think it's why Alec Guinness got the part here, right? Is that he was in Bridge of a River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia, which they're clearly fashioning Luke after Lawrence. But I was not prepared for this movie being the spiritual movie that it was. Honestly, it's it shocked me. I was shocked at how much this takes from biblical movies that George Lucas would have seen growing up. I got to ask, what is his religious affiliation? How much had, has he spoken to about how much Christianity or faith has inspired this movie? He really didn't look at Christianity. He's kind of agnostic. He believes in God, and but also believes in evolution and things. So he's kind of in that middle ground. When it comes to the Force, he's looking at Eastern philosophies. Back to the yeah. Kurosawa. This is Buddhism and things. We're going to get a lot more into it when we get to The Empire Strikes Back. But he's not going for Jesus and God here. He's not going Old Testament. He's going Eastern and mystical samurai. Huh. Yeah, Ewan McGregor may end up looking like Jesus when we get to Attack of the Clones, but these robes, this is definitely reminding me of a samurai film. I think in some of the McQuarrie concept art, or they looked very samurai, like where I think they even had top knots at one point. I think this is going so mythic. Like, if you read Hero with a Thousand Faces, if you read Carl Jung, who who would get into all this stuff as well, it's like, you know, Jesus was inspired by a myth. I'm, I'm not getting into a religious debate. This is just their claim. Like, Jesus did what he did because he was inspired by older myths. And I, I think you're going to this, like, proto-myth that, like, this is something, like, all religions kind of tap into. So, I, yeah, you could see religious themes, but it's Eastern, Western, but I think it's such basic myth that it's tough to tie it down to one thing. And I've read books that are religious analyses of Star Wars for fun, and it is so generic that if a Christian wants to see Christianity in it, he will, especially when we get to Phantom Menace. If a Buddhist wants to see Buddhist culture, he will. People can see whatever they really want to see in this. I, and I guess for me, coming from a background where I was raised Christian, it was startling. I did, to me, I didn't realize how much it was about this faith. And that even though there is science, and even though they're doing these incredible things with technology, higher above all of that still is this unifying oneness that, yeah, I mean, that's God. No, no, this is not God. This is, again, the Buddhist kind of karma type thing. Yeah, we're all connected. And it's not a being, it's a force. 
It doesn't feel that way to me watching this movie, particularly when we speak about Ben, who is going to become a very godlike character, who's going to literally be the voice in Luke's head as he ascends to this destiny. I really do feel like it's the father-son parallels here. I was definitely thinking about Christianity. It wouldn't have surprised me that Lucas affiliated at some point in his life with Christianity, but I see what you're saying. I think you're right. it, It draws from so many religions, which is probably why it has universal appeal. I mean, you you see the way people address Jedi. We're going to have Han calling it a hokey religion. Yes. When Vader's having that conversation, they say we're not afraid of your sorcerous ways. Yes. Like At least Vader's people kind of recognize it, but people are skeptical. This is not something that is still in the universe. People have moved on to technology for the most part, it feels like. What I think I heard is that Darth Vader is the last one, that absolutely no one practices the Force anymore except Darth Vader. Even Ben has... I don't know. Why is he here on Tatooine? Has, is he watching over Luke or has he just gone away because his kind is not needed? I don't remember the prequels and maybe those answers are there. Yeah, those answers will come. They don't give a reason in this film. It's just he's the kind of this old hermit that lives out there, but no one knows about him. He's been forgotten when like Darth Vader is going to say, I feel a presence I haven't felt in a long time. What I thought was interesting, though, is Vader is actually called a Jedi. In this, like the, you're still devoted to that old religion that he, Stuart, you're not going to know this word, but there's going to be Sith and we're going to get into Sith versus Jedi. But as far as this film, if you have these magic powers, you're a Jedi. Right. Yeah. It's in the novelization that Vader is referred to as the Dark Lord of the Sith. It became terminology. We'll be using that later on with the prequels. But yeah, growing up, I saw him as a dark Jedi. That's just what I called him, what all my friends called them, dark Jedi. And that was a cool concept. And somebody who gains all this power, which is supposed to be used for good, and then just turns evil. And we're going to get into that a lot with the next two movies. But I had my entire own version of what the prequels would be, should be as a kid. And maybe that's why they are so controversial, is that enough time was allowed to pass for people to come up with answers that were preferable to ones that Lucas had in his head. Sometimes saying less gets you further along. I wanted to ask you, Arnie, because during this whole conversation where we're between Obi-Wan and Luke, we hear this, oh yeah, I knew your father, we fought in the Clone Wars together. I never thought about the Clone Wars until Attack of the Clones came out. I'm like, hey, that's got the word clones in it. Like, did you have like this whole fantasy about how the Clone Wars played out? Oh yes. My thought growing up was that clones attacked the Republic and they were fighting off the clones and that these were evil clones that were seemingly unstoppable and that, yes, Anakin and Obi-Wan met. And he says, when I first met him, he was a great pilot. So I pictured Anakin was perhaps about Luke's age when Obi-Wan first met him. And I always thought that this is how Jedi's trained. I didn't think of them as a monastic society that would congregate in temples i thought of them as drifters you said the wild west Stuart. that's what i pictured them as is they kind of just go out among the people and then they find somebody and train them and of course the biggest childhood fantasy for me is that anyone with practice and with training could be a jedi and that was awesome We've all tried this, right? We've all like concentrated, tried to lift the pencil with your mind for a long time. Every time I went through an automatic door, I'd wave my hand. I still do. Like I had the force. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's this is a wonderful fantasy that will be torn apart later. But yes, it's great here. <laughs> yeah, that you, what you're saying is that what Ben is offering Luke is not the revelation that he is special, but that there is a religion or a practice, whatever you want to say, that can transform anyone into a superhero. Yeah. Yeah, which is so weird that Luke turns that down. Now, that is one of the Campbellian archetypes as you at first turn down the call, but refined, which is another funny line, refined the Sandcrawler destroyed and all the Jawas are burned up and Obi-Wan points out, oh, these marks, they think it's the Sand people, but Obi-Wan points out these gunshots, they're far too precise. They're from a Stormtrooper, which will be a joke because Stormtroopers can't hit anything. Now, I have to say the only non-Lucasfilm approved reference, I will make this entire retrospective. <laughs> Go seek out the fan film Troops. Yes, Troops. It's a parody of cops, but with the stormtroopers meeting Uncle Owen and Aunt Peru. Yeah, there's like five segments of it. They meet the Jawas, and it's like a domestic intervention and theft. Where'd you find those droids? Oh, you found them. <laughs> And it's just great. And I cannot watch this movie without thinking of that. I don't have time for fan films. Even before I was podcasting, I didn't have time for fan films. Troops is worth it. That's a funny concept. I, I may check that out. And is it inserted in the universe of this? Are they investigating the things that are being here? They're looking for the droids. Okay, yes. Everyone's looking for these droids. These droids are the MacGuffin that is getting passed around. And somehow the stormtroopers knew that the Jawas picked them up. And they massacred the Jawas. That was a shocker watching this one. You know what actually took my breath away was that they were just piling them up and burning their bodies. I'm so used to burial as like the way to get rid of a dead body. It felt disrespectful for half a second. I was like, oh, my God, they're just burning bodies in a pile. I thought it was nice that they're actually cleaning up the scene <laughs> and, and giving them some kind of rest. Yeah, a funeral pyre is a classic concept. But not in this country, not in anyone I've ever, no one I've ever known has been. Cremated? You don't know anyone who was cremated? <laughs> they're not publicly burned, though. Yes, exactly. Stacking piles of body and burning them when you're used to bodies being buried. I would say nine times out of ten in a Western, you're going to see somebody dig a grave. There's a lot of Jawas, though. Yeah, but this was it was a shocker. Like I said, it just took me out for a moment of like, wow, I guess you can't bury bodies in the sand. But it was a, a brutal death. These cute little minion creatures uh, were all executed. <laughs> but Lucas has a pretty bad way of getting us from scene to scene. He does this often that characters all of a sudden will be like aha because this happened we must be doing this and in this example luke sees murder jawas and instantly goes oh they must be attacking my home i didn't put that together in fact i don't think any time i ever saw this movie i understood that it was the stormtroopers that killed that family i thought it was the sand people well you need to see troops then you'll understand <laughs> The whole point is they track the droids down. Like, he connects the dots that this was attacked by stormtroopers because they're looking for these droids. And as a child, I was freaked out by those skeletons of Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. That was the creepiest thing. I had to look away when I was really young. I was seeing World War II imagery. I swear to God, it looked like a crematorium to me. The way it was burning out and all of that. I mean, I've been to Auschwitz and all that. It was, yeah, it's a startling image in a movie so light. It's definitely one of the scenes that sticks with you as haunting. You don't need for Luke to be a better actor in this scene, although it would be nice. The power comes <laughs> just from seeing the, the smolder. 
And this is necessary to push Luke along the way. He's lived in fear of his uncle. He can't go to the academy because of his uncle. It's not until his uncle's dead that he realizes, wait, I don't have to farm anymore. Yeah, it's actually convenient. I mean, he doesn't want to be there anymore, and the universe has listened to him. It's the monkey's paw. You get what you wish for. Your family is dead, and away you go. My question to you guys is, was Obi-Wan here always waiting to get him back in the game? Was the plan always to get Luke in space? It was always, from my understanding from the prequels, I haven't read all the books, but it was to protect Luke and watch over him. Yeah, it's kind of both. I mean, he's supposed to protect Luke, but the reason he's protecting Luke is because Luke is, we'll find out later, the son of Vader. Vader is one of the most powerful Jedi in the galaxy, and therefore his son and daughter, maybe, will have the power to overthrow him. So the reason protecting Luke is important is because they believe that when he is ready, he can save the universe. Right. In this movie, there is no connection to who Luke's father is. They keep mentioning him, and Luke has a misunderstanding about who he was. He didn't think he was a soldier. He just thought that he flew a freighter or something. He was a pilot. He wasn't a killer. But the truth is, you know, people got these sideways looks. They're like, oh, like his father. I love the moment between Uncle Owen and Aunt Peru where she's like, he's got too much of his father in him. And he says, that's what I'm afraid of. And they just give each other this glance. It's, it's a nice little moment that tips you off to something. But what does that mean? Do they know that Darth Vader is Luke's father? Yes. Well, they, at least they know something bad happened with his father. Or maybe you just take it as, oh, his father was really rebellious and hot-headed, and Luke is that way, and that's what ended up getting his father killed. You see, and I believe, based upon the looks, based upon the dialogue here, I do believe Lucas knew Vader was Luke's father, or at least had that idea planted in his head. It's shown in some of the earlier drafts. But Leia is the sister? Uh-uh. No. That came much later. <laughs> but just to back it up here. So these relatives are caring for someone knowing that this child is the descendant of the most evil force in the universe. They tell him nothing? That's weird to me. Obi-Wan says that they're afraid he'll follow the Jedi off on a damn fool idealistic crusade. Well, they're not. It's not his kid. He should go do whatever he wants. Plus, look, Luke doesn't seem that bright. He wants to go to Tashi Station and pick up the power converters. If he found out he was the son of the most evil man in the galaxy, you know he'd run off his mouth and then be picked up and killed. Yeah, he would be hell on the playground at the very least. <laughs> and who knows how much they actually know about Darth Vader. Like, I can imagine from what we'll see in Revenge of the Sith, oh yeah, his dad became really bad and killed his mom. Like, we don't know how much they really know. Again, this is a this plan is just out there. There's not really a presence of the Empire there. I'd like to believe that most people don't know the lineage here, including these relatives, that they're basically just reacting to, we know that your father ended up dead over a war, and we don't want to see the same fate for you. To me, that plays better than everyone knows who Luke is but Luke. To me, that seems cruel, that Luke's walking around a sap. What I think so interesting with Darth Vader in this film, he's not really the main bad guy. Like when Princess Leia is being held, it's all about Grand Moff Tarkin, Peter Cushing. He's the one like, oh, I should have known that you would be holding Vader's leash. Like Vader doesn't even seem like he's this weird sorcerer that wanders around, but it's almost like he doesn't care about the political stuff going on, about the Imperial Senate being dissolved and all that. It's weird that Vader is not really the main force of evil in this film. He's the scariest looking, 
I, he is the main force of evil. I think if you ask a hundred people, a hundred people are going to tell you he's the main bad guy, Jacob. But if you watch the movie, if you look at what the movie's telling you, he is nothing but an enforcer. I mean, it's, you know, you got layers of bureaucracy before you get to the evil sorcerer. Yeah, that was the surprise watching this viewing is that there are people to shout him down and be like, oh, shut up, old man, with your mythical wizard tricks. There, there are people that are not impressed with Vader and what he can do. He is not running the show, but he definitely is, yeah, the scariest person in the room. Is he a bouncer? Is that what you're saying? He's a hunter. I mean, Obi-Wan says Vader hunted down and killed all the Jedi. He is an assassin. He's a badass, but he's not a bureaucrat. He's not going to make the rules for a galaxy. He's not going to command an army. He's going to just get crap done. And yet he's always in the war room. He does look uncomfortable. I will say he's the odd man out when you have all these old British actors sitting around talking about their evil plans. He doesn't even have a chair in the room. He has to stand. Yeah. But in our memory, the way we think of him is that, yes, it's his Death Star. But in truth, it isn't. It's a, It's owned by a collective. There is one passing mention of an emperor, I think. I never would have caught it if I hadn't seen sequels. I never caught it when I was a kid. It was after I saw Return of the Jedi that I caught that mention. But, of course, Obi-Wan doesn't have a starship, so they have to find somebody they can hire to get off of this backwater desert planet. And they go to Mos Eisley and through a CGI barrage finally make it to a cantina. Nope, I had no CGI of mine, and I liked it. It's in passing. I will say this. I won't say that the CGI characters added here add anything, that they're great, that I love them, that when they're doing the little bit of slapstick, I wasn't thinking about Jar Jar. But I don't feel like they're ruinous. I feel like it passes really quickly. No. Like with the land speeder, like the way they did that trick in the 70s, they had some mirrors, they had to do it all practically. And yeah, there's a few times where you could tell they smudged the film or something, try to paint over it. But that CGI with that land speeder driving around just looks so bad. I actually kind of like the fact that they removed the Vaseline smear because obviously that wasn't a floating car. What they did was they had tires and then they literally rubbed Vaseline on the film to hide them. I like that they cleaned that up a bit, but... I can't say that I'm a fan of all the crazy droids and other critters that distract you. I like the fact, though, the whole impetus behind this is this is supposed to be a spaceport and the biggest hive of scum and villainy. And Lucas didn't have the money for that in the original. He did add ships flying out, which you'd expect from a spaceport and things like that. It connects it to the feel of the new movies is what it does. And how you feel about the new movies is probably going to be what your takeaway is from these little tiny moments. But my memory from childhood was that Luke left the planet in order to go to the bar and meet Han Solo and Chewbacca. I did not remember that it was right here on Tatooine. There's a lot going on on Tatooine. Well, yeah, these are all smugglers. I mean, that's what Han is. I love when you go into Moss Eisley, like, again, another iconic scene. You walk in, that music kicks up, that alien head pops up. I remember reading, like, people on the set for this were just, like, cracking up. They're like, this movie's gonna be so bad. Like, the British employees are just like, oh, this American with this dumb space movie he's making. And you could see it here. It could all go to crap here when you get with all these latex costumes and rubber masks. Everybody thought they were on a bomb when they were in Britain. Everybody. And I want to point out, 
none of these aliens were really there. A couple were in Britain. Most of the aliens you see, when they got back to the States and were doing post-production, they went, ah, crap, this isn't interesting enough. And they go and get a mask maker and then do a whole bunch of insert shots of aliens. And he grabbed a couple of Wolfman masks off his rack, which Lucas got pissed about and replaced in the special edition. But yeah, this is all inserts. They reshot the Greedo scene because the mouth didn't move right. There was a lot of retakes. And honestly, this is a film that everybody involved says was saved in post-production reshoots and editing. Yeah, I don't feel like the directing is really strong here. I mean, sometimes compositions are really strong, but the flow, the dialogue that characters announce, hey, we need to get to this moment. They make connections I cannot. The jumble of inserts here. This is not a great director here. No matter what you think about the finished product and how much you're enjoying it, I feel like it's pretty sloppy. I mean, come on, Stuart. You've heard the story. All his direction was was faster, more intense. He is not an actor's director, and the actors were very frustrated by his lack of direction, and it's okay here. I actually think the actors are up to the task. You may not like Mark Hamill, but he plays naive like nobody's business. I think it's going to be in the future that we're going to see some issues with his directing capabilities here. Everybody's doing what they need to. This is the only directing job on the original trilogy. Other people take this over. Lucas comfortably steps back. <laughs> we'll talk about how much he steps back. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see if this is a Poltergeist Spielberg situation. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I get that he, you could still call him the director for all of them, and maybe we should, but he's not the one there yelling action. And I think that's notable here that I, I haven't gone back to look at THX 1138 or American Graffiti, but yes, his discomfort with directing these kinds of scenes here. Here, it's evident. It's it's messy. Thank God we have some natural charisma. Thank God we have Alec Guinness, who I remembered him kind of rolling his eyes through some of this pontification, but I think he's pretty good here. I actually think whatever he thinks about these movies, and I believe he hates them. He did. He made a child cry when he was asked for an autograph by saying he'd only give the autograph if the child promised to never watch these movies again. <laughs> but I like him. I really do feel like he is a great... He's just a great actor and a great presence. And, and And Harrison Ford, there's a reason why he would go on to be a big star. It's not just on the back of Star Wars. I mean, he just has natural charisma at this point in his career. His crankiness is charming. And what a difference this movie is after he enters the bar. There is something that's grounding about Han Solo. Like, all of this is so mythic, so archetypal. You got a princess. You got the evil sorcerer. You got the wizard. You got the boy going on the journey. And then you just got this smuggler. You got the rogue. You got this guy who, like, he's almost laughing at everything going on around him. Laughing at that hokey religion and just too cool for all this space stuff. There is something grounding about Han Solo's character in this film. Yeah, and yet I could see him as being polarizing. He's either your favorite or he's your least favorite, depending on how you feel about the Jedi. If you're into the Jedi and the mysticism, this guy's just a dude. But he is the cool dude and the most 70s character in this movie. I mean, he is the mercenary. He is the closest you'll get to a taxi driver type of character in this film. Well, in the original version of this film, at least. Yeah, I mean, there's, of course, the famous debate 
of who shot first. In the original, he's hired by these two for an exorbitant amount of money. A bounty hunter comes because Han Solo has a backstory, more of this expanding the universe. This was totally not needed, but he owes money to somebody or something called Jabba the Hutt, and this Rodian named Greedo is there to shoot him, just kill him and take his ship. That is the reason Greedo was there. And in the original 70s version, Han just shoots from under the table and kills him, and that is a very, like, vigilante type of tactic. I don't think anyone in the 70s would blink. But when Lucas became an old man, he then blinked about his own choices. I think the biggest problem with the special edition isn't so much that Greedo shoots first. It's how awful it looks. <laughs> Greedo's two feet away and misses him. And I know when they came out with the DVD, they try to like do this weird head tilt with Han Solo to try to make it look more real. It still looks awful. Did they change this in the Blu-ray at all? Stewart saw the best version of this. In the original special edition, a cardboard cutout, basically a freeze frame of Harrison Ford, just sits there while Greedo misses and then like a half second later Han shoots back and they just kept tweaking it tweaking it they made a head twitch so it looks like Harrison Ford like moved like Neo in the <laughs> Matrix to get out of it but just like from the waist up and it was a cut and paste job obviously and Greedo misses and he shoots back in this one it's cut so fast they shoot at the same time Greedo still misses my problem with this change is that out of all of the changes of the special edition this is the one I like least I'm okay with them updating effects. I'm okay with them adding scenes, kind of. But this fundamentally changes a character's arc through the series. How does this... Because he looks out for himself. That's the whole thing. He doesn't stay with the rebellion. He's like, I'm taking my money and leaving. And his arc is that, no, he's going to come back and help save the day. He is not looking out for himself. This establishes him as this guy that's going to shoot first, ask question later, just doing what he wants. Right now, you guys are talking like we all understand what what you're referring to. I think the casual listener right now doesn't even know what you're talking about. This was a mind blower for me to find out that this was some contentious thing, that people wore shirts saying Han shot first and whatever. I remember asking you, Arnie, what does that mean? I think I said the exact same thing then. It fundamentally changed the character. It does not. This moment is so trivial. Whether he shot first or second, it's just a shootout. This is a Western. Greedo was going to fire at him. Whoever shot first, the point is that Han is the better shot and wins the fight. I don't see why it would matter whether Greedo pulls a gun or not. And Stuart, I can almost go with you if the shootout was done better. It's that Greedo misses from across the table. It's so ridiculous. No, ridiculous is this whole argument about it. I I couldn't (laughs) believe this was the scene after having heard about all of this for so long. I didn't even remember Greedo. That's Arnie's favorite character. Yeah, he's my favorite character. He's my collecting focus. It was the first action figure I had as a kid. (laughs) Greedo's my dude. Okay, just know that your world is very different from mine. I never thought about Greedo. This is why you're here. Yes. So you're saying for someone that's not a fan, it doesn't matter. But it does. You only saw the best version. This moment shows Han is a badass. My problem with it is that we have two redundant scenes. We have a scene here with Greedo where he's talking about turning him into Jabba, and then we find out Jabba's actually just outside. Well, which is why that scene was cut in the version I watched, the theatrical version. Yeah, originally that scene was shot. Jabba the Hutt was played by an Irishman in a wool coat or a furry shaggy coat. 
Are there pictures? I'd love to know what it looked oh, like. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's pictures. I remember seeing those, yeah. The footage has even been released as bonus features on the DVDs, but Lucas says he didn't want Jabba the Hutt to be a fat guy in a wool coat. Uh, I this To me, this is revisionist, Lucas, but okay. He says he wanted to put in a stop-motion character, but it didn't work back then. They cut the whole scene. I do agree. I think that scene is redundant. I also think it downplays later on the introduction of the Millennium Falcon, who I believe is as important a character as any of these others. I think that ship, as the series goes on, becomes a character. And having this scene here kind of undermines it. The second worst thing to Greedo shooting first, the second worst. I know where you're going. Is they put Boba Fett in the scene. Why did they put Boba Fett in this? And why does he break the fourth wall to mug and go, hey, in case you didn't see me in the background, I'm here. Guess what? I missed it. Boba Fett's in this movie? I didn't yeah. You, you didn't see him, like, stare at you for five prolonged seconds? <laughs> no, I did not. Then you weren't paying attention. I did see Greedo. What confused me was that Greedo seemed to be alive and well a few minutes later hanging out by the ship. That was where my focus was on. Yeah, there's some continuity issues, or maybe they're just different Rodians. They're different Rodians, and apparently they all have the same style of dress. Yes. I, I That always bugged me as a kid. I'm like, look, the Greedo, he's still alive. He's walking around. But now I know in the 97 edition and to the Blu-ray and maybe even to the DVD, they did upgrade the CGI for Jabba, the, that theatrical version looked awful yes it did they used the phantom menace java in the home releases versus the 1997 and the vhs releases that looked horrible harrison ford at one point like sticks his hand into the cgi it really was bad yeah he goes like he holds his hand up but does he still step on the oh, tail of yes Jabba? he doesn't step as much but again they did a cut and paste because when trying to figure out how to put the job of the hut they'd established in the scene java has a tail and they can't change the footage of harrison ford walking behind him around to the other side so they have him step on the tail oh how wacky is that i remember in the theatrical version of the special editions before they changed the cgi it, it was like a cartoon is like i almost like a sad trumpet or something went off it's like whoa like java makes this like <laughs> groan or something this comical face it is bad they've downplayed it he doesn't go bug-eyed cartoony as much and harrison ford looks a little less like a drag and drop movement but you're not gonna like what i have to say but my feeling is cut the greedo scene and keep this one I mean, honestly, you have one or the other. This scene shows Han Solo to be a pussy. He acquiesces to an extra 15% to the gangster. Greedo shows him to be a badass. You cut this scene. Yeah, you're right. You cut one of them. And you have to have that intro scene for the Millennium Falcon. I agree with you, Arnie, when you get this build up to this great ship that Han Solo supposedly has, and then we get Luke's point of view. What a piece of junk. Yeah, that's the first introduction to the Falcon. It's what should be. It draws attention to it. To have the entire job a scene around the ship and not pay any attention to the ship? Yeah. You're right, but they could change that. They could put the digital backdrop somewhere else, right? I mean, they, that's what they should have done, is it should have been the market or something outside. It, it shouldn't have been the ship. But I don't think I realized Jabba the Hutt existed before Return of the Jedi. As a child, I always just thought that character was introduced in that moment. I never realized that they were building through all of the movies to putting Han in a carbonite block and having Jabba own him. I didn't realize that was a storyline that was unfolding. Certainly not in this movie. I don't think Lucas did either. I think it was just backstory to make him seem desperate and to build it in. And then it evolved throughout writing. Yeah, I, I agree. And it works that way. Let me put it this way. What is best about Star Wars for me is how complete the world is, how thought out everything feels. 
but I do not actually want to know all of these things. I, I really do not want to know all the personal histories and backstories of all these characters. To me, that gets into lore. And lore is something people that know, that heard me reading Tolkien and Lord of the Rings knows. I really struggle when you're, you're naming all of the villages and what they eat and all of that. And we're not telling me detailed information about the plot. It just kind of washes over to me. So I appreciate that this movie streamlined the lore and just made it background decoration. It makes it more fun for me that the pace hasn't lagged to explain, oh, well, what does Jabba and Han, what does he owe him and all of that? I mean, they don't dwell on any of this background minutia stuff. And meanwhile, I've read the short story collection Tales from the Moss Eisley Cantina that gives yeah. me the backstory of every masked alien in the place. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think it's fun that people can have their favorites. I, I know that I did. You know, like it's fun. Certain characters are a delight just to see, but I leave it there. I really don't want to go to their home world. I really don't want to spend so much time away from the story they've told me. I mean, the prologue, as you pointed out, Jacob, it announces what this movie's about. There's a plan for a Death Star, and they have to stop it. That's the focus, and I think this movie is good at staying focused on that, even though there's all this stuff in the periphery. But this is the point that the action kicks in. Han Solo blasts out of the planet, shooting stormtroopers along the way. A couple Star Destroyers try to stop him. And meanwhile, we've been getting scenes on the Death Star the whole time. We kind of talked about their little board meeting there, but they're torturing Princess Leia. We haven't really talked about Carrie Fisher yet as the brawless princess, but she's been undergoing a rough time. Vader's been injecting her and torturing her and trying to find out where the rebels are. It's the reason why he didn't blast the ship at the begin with. I mean, if he wanted the plans stopped from falling into bad hands, you just blow up the ship. But because she is on that, and maybe it would have been politically unsound because she's some figure in this, what, Republic? What is, what is the Confederacy? What it, It's now the Empire. It used to be the Republic. But they're not really worried about political soundness, given that they're going to blow up her entire planet. <laughs> yeah. Well, th right. this is their introduction. This is the first time they're ever going to blow up a planet. I guess they've never even tested this yet. It could have all gone wrong. This is really showing us that there's no middle ground with the Empire. This is a regime that is perfectly fine just going in, not just killing everyone on a planet, but making the planet blow up like a firecracker. And of course, they're doing this after she's given up a rebel base anyway, so it really shows that they're liars. On top of being incredibly cruel and capable of extreme violence, they don't honor their word. And I love Peter Cushing in this role. He is just tremendous. The way he just so blithely says... All right, you may fire when ready. What? You're far too trusting. Yeah. I mean, he's just so comfortable in the role of pure evil that he is a delightful villain. He may not have the scary cachet of a Darth Vader, but he's good. Yeah, and the fact that he's like, oh, yeah, Dan Tween, which I always thought was Tantween she gave up as a kid because they sound so familiar. But she gives up this planet Dantween. Oh, it's just far too remote to make it as an effective demonstration of the power. Like, he is smart. He's evil and he's smart. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to blow up this, like, planet that's central so everyone knows where you could just blow them up. And that we're willing to blow up even peaceful planets. So if you step up to us, gone. And this wakes up Ben. I Question, and again, I know we got prequels that are going to give answers, but... Is his powers dormant? Did he give up 
being a Jedi, and no, so we, this is actually wakening him up to the powers? We saw him earlier with the stormtroopers when they're asking him about the droids as they're going to Mos Eisley. He waves his hand, and he's like, these are not the droids you're looking for. He still has the Force. That's parlor tricks. He just heard <laughs> a whole planet blow up from across the other side of the universe. Well, it's such a disruption in the Force, it's reached out to him. He's in tune with the Force. It goes through everything. My question is, is he retired or is he just bored with using the powers? Neither. I mean, he is practicing his Jedi religion in private and he's old, but he is still very comfortable using the force. I can imagine after a hard day of doing whatever he does in the desert, he may use the force to grab himself a beer. And he is training Luke at this point. Like Luke is learning how to deflect these laser bolts from this little ball. My question, Arnie, with the Blu-ray, did they fix these lightsaber effects? Because this thing looks like all blown out. That lightsaber is white. It's really bad looking in the laser disc transfer. Yeah, and then in the special edition, for some reason, a color alteration turned it green. They finally got it all fixed up. But here we get more pontification about the Force. It surrounds us, penetrates us, it controls your actions, it obeys your commands, and it allows you to deflect blaster bolts while blindfolded. I mean, that's kind of a cool power to have. This does feel like ninja training stuff. This is where I'm getting that Eastern religion. Yeah, the influence, the ideas that he's taking from Eastern concepts, uh, we're seeing that here. I mean, Kung Fu was popular in the, the 70s. Bruce Lee should have had this role, right? If he had lived. Except he's not British. No, I mean the Luke role. No, Bruce Lee would have been a master. No no one's going to believe that guy needs to train to become a Jedi. <laughs> I think he already was a Jedi in real life. Yeah, no, he, yeah, I get it. But you're right. We need to believe that Luke is learning something here. I guess, oddly enough, I never did feel like I got that part of the journey. I never felt like he was getting better. I guess he does. He learns to turn off his targeting computer at the end and trust his feelings. Okay, uh, yeah. But yeah, you never do get a sense that like, oh, he keeps relying on some kind of computer to do something for him and where that would pay off, I guess, in a more traditional film. Normally in writing, you'd have a character do something and fail and then they get the opportunity to do it again and have learned to do it better and succeed. Or, you know, it happens a couple of times. And I think they do that in the next movie. But in this one, I don't see him doing or trying. And my shorthand for this is that he continues to use a blaster. He's not really trying because Obi-Wan has described the lightsaber as a more elegant weapon for a more civilized age. If you're going to use the force, you use the lightsaber. If you're not, you grab a blaster. But yeah, they come out of light speed. They've been going light speed to Alderaan. I, I think that's the only time we really get anything that's kind of sciency is like they have the Nava computer and it's got to calculate the jump to light speed so they don't go through a star. Like, you, yeah, of course, if you're going that fast, you got to have your path planned out. And of course, the jump to light speed. What an amazing yes. visual effect that was with the stars stretching and everything. When I saw that again, I mean, I've seen this movie hundreds of times and I'm still taken away by it. Yeah, there are certain things that always like just give me the a shiver down my spine that John Williams score Luke looking at the two suns and the music there and yeah that jump to light speed when you see those stretchy stars yeah it, it's just so iconic but they get there Alderaan's gone they chase after a TIE fighter and are taken aboard the Death Star and now again if you thought there were some talky scenes talking is done we are going to now rush 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 because they are aboard and it really didn't hit me until like my 20s. Think about this. You're on an unstoppable evil weapon surrounded by thousands of enemy troops. 
I don't know that the movie fully sells the concept of what a crazy ass infiltration they do. <laughs> it's kind of a Keystone Troopers, really. I feel like the Stormtroopers should be really scary, but they're so bumbling. They never have a threat to them that, that they take them out in this slapsticky way. I mean, if you have seen THX 1138, Lucas has this idea of bureaucracy, and I think we'll get that in the prequels. And I, I think he still plays, he still has that feel like, yeah, you're in this giant death station, but no one really knows what anyone else is doing. Like, C-3PO is going to fool some stormtroopers by saying they're droids that work on the Death Star and were locked up by the prisoners that all the stormtroopers are trying to capture. Like, they're able to walk into the detention center and, oh yeah, we're transferring this guy. Like, there's this sense that it is so large. It, it's almost defeating itself. Yeah, I mean, we're behind the gates of Mordor here, right? I mean, I, if we hadn't thought about it already, having reviewed last year the Lord of the Rings series, uh, the parallels are obvious and numerous. This whole journey, Lucas has never admitted that taking from Tolkien directly, right? But eh, he says that he was inspired by and enjoys Tolkien. Yeah, everyone was reading it at the time he went to college, so I, I refuse to believe that it didn't have some kind of influence on the way the story unfolds with the wizard and the evil army of darkness behind enemy lines. Yeah. I mean, even Sam and Frodo dressed up as orcs to walk through Mordor and we see Han and Luke do that. They dress up as stormtroopers. Yeah. And Luke being the son of somebody that had the previous adventure is kind of like Bilbo and Frodo. I mean, just many, many things. And Obi-Wan is Gandalf. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's unfair to, to compare too much because Lord of the Rings was made so much more recently, but there was more fear there. I felt like because Peter Jackson made horror movies, there was a, more of a tendency to amplify the terror of it. I don't feel like much that happens on this Death Star is particularly scary. You'd say that we don't get how dangerous this mission is. It's because I don't feel like they're really in a lot of danger. It kind of plays like comedy. Well, yeah, the funniest laugh out loud moment for me, Han and Luke, they're in their stormtrooper outfits. They pretend to bind up Chewie to take him to the detention center. And they have this big shootout. Don't forget, they also, what my laugh out loud moment is, they take the elevator to get there and they're facing the wrong way on the elevator. <laughs> It's just so subtle, but funny. I love it. Like the, that beacon's going off and like, Han, we're all fine here now. Thank you. How, how are you? Like the way he asked, like, how are you? Because he's like totally out of ad-libbing to get these guys off their back. And he's like, boring conversation anyway, and shoots the speaker. Yeah, you are right. There is humor here. But here is a case of more old man Lucas censorship. In the special edition, he cut two scenes of them shooting Imperial officers where they actually appeared in pain and there's like a burning effect on their clothes. Totally cut. Well, I do remember, I read the original novelization and like those lasers, like I, it's really gruesome like when they shoot a stormtrooper and it like melts their armor all around them. Yeah, this is mm -hmm. much more tame. This is a PG rated film. I don't think you had to take out the shooting of those officers though. Yeah, I mean, you saw it in your version, Jacob, yeah. but- it was removed from Stewart's version. I saw both, and I kind of like having the feeling that these lasers are dangerous. I think we need more danger here, honestly. I think this should be scarier. It would help me stay with it. There's kind of a safe, comedic approach to it. The moments of violence have been few and far between. We pointed it out. It's when the uncle and Peru are, are burning at their home, or it's the pile of Jawas, or it's maybe yeah, Ben taking off the arm of the guy in the bar. But by and 
large, this is not a violent movie in the way that we would expect any movie today to be like. This is a very, very tame universe. You're telling me this action does something for you? You're thrilled? You're excited? You're engaged? Yeah, I am. I absolutely am. I mean, this is fast-paced shootout. It's kind of funny because while they're shooting, the Imperials, they're screaming, Oh, look out, the Wookiees loose is going to tear us all apart. Yeah, what works for me here, like as a kid, yeah, the shooting was awesome. Watching this scene now, specifically in the detention center, it seems to go on just a few beats too long where they're shooting, I guess, surveillance cameras. And it's like, okay, you've shown that shot like four times already. I get the point. But I do like the humor. I do like when they free Princess Leia and you have Harrison Ford, Mark Hamill... And Carrie Fisher, and it feels like this old, like, 40s, like, the way they're snapping at each other. I'm enjoying that. End of the shoot, Flyboy. Like, Princess Leia finally comes alive. She's been this dormant prisoner so much in the film. To see that she's fiery and she's going to take control, I like how they all interact. She's always been fiery. I love the banter she has with Tarkin early on. She is given a death warrant. She is on death row. She will die soon, but she won't give up the base. She gave up Dantooine. They'd already left Dantooine. She was given old information, and she talks about Tarkin smelling and holding Vader's leash. Well, she has been through a lot. I gotta say, when that little death ball came for her, I was worried. I didn't know what that meant, but, you know, we don't know what was going on behind closed doors, but I'd be pretty cranky, too. How many examples in cinema before this are there of a female character getting rescued and being the toughest and smartest one in the group. She actually saves all their lives. They are in a dead-end corridor. They're cut off by a dozen or more stormtroopers and she's talking back you know this is some rescue she's immediately being as snarky to her rescuers as she was to Tarkin and she's the one who grabs a gun out of Luke's hand shoots the wall shoots some troopers and jumps through she's a badass and I think that's why she's such an icon for women who love sci-fi and comic book movies yeah, I agree. She's got a real rawness to her I wasn't prepared for. I remember thinking of her mostly as being a damsel in distress with her hair in buns. But no, she's really, in every scene, there's a prickliness to her. I mean, she's always doing something underhanded, like slipping the plans out, or she's tough. And it comes through. She's a pistol-packing mama. I think you'd have to go to, like, exploitation or something to find uh, maybe a female character that was this raw. But for a mainstream movie in 77, it probably probably was startling to see a woman in this way. And yeah, I love the banter. It kind of reminds me of Hepburn and Tracy with her going back and forth with Han. And I never got that as a kid that this was supposed to be a love triangle, though. I just think that when I was a real young kid, I just thought the knight gets the princess. And then as I saw the later films, I saw her romance Han. But I didn't get that this is the love triangle that's actually going to encompass the whole trilogy. Now we know why he wanted off the ranch, right? It wasn't really to fly anything or see his friends. It's like, he's horny. He looked at that hologram, that barely there projection from R2 is like, she's beautiful. What? You can't even see her. She's like a half inch tall. And I love the way when he walks into the cell to rescue her, like his head is just cocked, like he's just amazed by her. And it's a nice little performance there. Yeah, it is. Is, I mean, obviously, he's at that age where he would be really, really randy, and it makes sense that he would be instantly in love, even though that's silly and ridiculous and not established by the writing or the characters. When you just project yourself into this kid that has literally just been with two family members and a bunch of robots all his life, of course he is going to be 
over the moon for this woman that what I don't get is from her that she would be into him. You know, later she's going to say, I had this feeling. I don't get much feeling from her other than rage. You know, I think that Carrie Fisher is really good at projecting an anger while still being feminine. But I don't get love from her side. No, the only time you really get that sex appeal is when Luke walks into that detention cell and she's kind of sprawled out. She's got the curve. She's got that leg bent. Like, that's kind of a sexy pose. I see why Luke kind of just gawked for a little bit. I'm wondering if Lucas was intimidated by her, is what I'm wondering, is that maybe he didn't know how to approach this more famous person and he maybe had a crush on her. I don't know any of the backstory of this movie. I'm only projecting. I'm wondering if there was an attraction. Was there ever a reported love affair? Was he married at this time? He was to editor Marsha Lucas. She won the Academy Award for editing Star Wars. Many people say Marsha saved Star Wars in her editing. So no, there is absolutely no tale of any infidelity or anything with Carrie Fisher at all. So maybe the wife just cut her out. They're like, we don't want any stop scenes. I don't know. It's just a reading I got. I don't know what to say other than I always thought of Leia being kind of a soft character in my mind, in my childhood memories of her. But honest to God, God, really, for most of this movie, she's a pistol packing mama you don't want to mess with. Yeah, I love it when they finally go down that chute. If you want to get a little bit of horror, this scene always freaked me out as a kid. Yeah. With that tentacle monster floating in the one they're just in garbage and then there's a monster in the garbage that's pulling luke under the water but yeah she's yelling at han still he tries to shoot the door down and she's like yelling at him again i we wouldn't in our household get a trash compactor until a few years later i was afraid of it because of this scene the fear that somehow i was going to get inside it and be crushed i mean it's obviously something that lucas would exploit again in the indiana jones series the idea of walls and spikes and all coming down on the characters he has fun in these moments. I, yeah, I like this scene. It's a lot of fun then and now. Yeah, it's another action-packed scene. We go straight from the shootout in the cell bay to here where the monster's dragging Luke underwater. Is there an EU explanation why there's a monster in the trash? Is this like <laughs> the crocodile getting flushed down the toilet? I think Lucas saw it as the crocodile in the toilet or just... So some uh, stormtrooper had like a pet, diagno- whatever it's called. in like, Dianoga. But I have read things that like they're put there to ingest the trash or help keep the trash, whatever, right? Yeah, You know, it's also in Lord of the Rings. I want to point out there is a scene where Frodo gets grabbed by a tentacle monster and pulled into a lake or something like that. It made me think about it. But yeah, this is fun and it gives the droids something heroic to do. They've mostly been standing around. C-3PO does something heroic. It may be the only time that he does something heroic in this entire saga. What did he do? I didn't notice. He's the one that comes up with this idea to lock themselves like in this closet because stormtroopers are trying to get into the control room that they're hiding in. So they lock themselves and they tell the stormtroopers, oh, they locked us in here. They went down that way. Oh, right. So he actually came up with the plan. He used his brains. I mean, he knows like, what, six billion languages. It's nice to see him come up with some kind of idea because he's so just fettering all the time and so worried about everything. He's the collaborator. You know he would just work with the Nazis or whatever. In any given <laughs> whatever is going to be like the least harm to him, he's ready for them to be their master. He signed on to Luke being his master really, really quickly. Yeah, he was done with the rebellion instantly. He's our master. Let's do what he says now. Yeah, I really get the sense that he is just a follower. So for him to be devious in any way, to lie to anybody is kind of a surprise. He usually gives you whatever you want. And that's sort of the 
annoyance of him and sort of the, the comedy of him as well. He's a ridiculous character. And yes, I do believe that if anyone knows anything about Kurosawa, they know that both of these characters were oh, yeah. extrapolations from Hidden Fortress. But yes, he's the one who turns the comlink on and, you know, you get some comedy here. They're cheering that they survived. Curse my metal body. I wasn't fast enough. Now, technically speaking, they could end the movie here, right? They could make it about, we just have to hit the self-destruct button, get off the Death Star, and away we go. There is another 40 minutes of this movie, and I realize that we need it because it gives Luke somewhere to go. It allows him to become something else, but I've always felt this could be the climax. In some ways, it is where the movie peaks in excitement terms. I agree. I've felt that for so many years, because also, we're going to find every other Star Wars movie but this one climaxes with a lightsaber fight. And that is badass. Ben Kenobi's been sneaking around the Death Star this whole time. Nobody's noticing this old man in a brown robe. He's like making sounds with the force to distract stormtroopers. He turns off the tractor beam in an awesome visual effect shot that makes it look like a chasm. And cool sounds again. Yeah amazing. But you want to talk about sounds. He faces off against Darth Vader. And what it took me many films to realize is every movie, Ben Burt gets one scene where he is going to do all of it and there's no score. John Williams sits back for one scene and Ben Burt gets to do it. Now that you say that, I, yeah, I never realized that until you said that right now. Yeah, and this is the one in Star Wars, the lightsaber fight where Ben Burt created the sounds. I mean, we've heard Luke kind of dilly around with a lightsaber, but here, the first lightsaber fight in cinema history, Darth Vader versus Obi-Wan, two old friends and Vader turned to evil. The great line, when I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. All right. So it's two old guys banging sticks. They, the yeah. sword fights do get better and more choreographed, but it is still to me, this is like the climax of the film. Yes. This is the two enemies come together to fight. And every time that that ends and they fly off to Yavin for the final fight, it feels like a reprise, like an additional chorus. You think the song's over? No, here we're going to just, you know, like the band saying, one more time! Yes, I agree. It feels indulgent to keep going after this. I, I know why they do it, and there's a reason to it, but I feel like, dramatically speaking, the most exciting stuff is happening at this moment. Yeah, I almost always forget that there's a whole other space battle after this. And I think Lucas, he's going to redo this in The Phantom Menace, and he's going to combine these two types of scenes where it, it feels more climactic. Like, yeah, you have Obi-Wan fighting there, and that, again, with the little backstory they've given, it's still, you know, not knowing what else was to come, it still feels like a big, important fight going on between these two guys. There is history between them. And Obi-Wan would win, right? He throws the fight. That was never clear to me until this viewing. But it's very clear that he just stops fighting. Yeah, he puts his lightsaber up. and Yeah, he looks at Luke. Basically, he has such faith in the Force that he knows he's going to survive death and that it's more important that this Luke develop further by being outraged by Obi-Wan's death. He's allowing himself to die and be martyred so that Luke can become the universal savior he wants him to be. I think that's part of it. I also think it's to become a distraction. He can't get to the ship. There's a bunch of stormtroopers between them. Darth Vader's there. He knows Luke will stay and fight for him because they've formed this immediate bond as Jedi and Master. And so he's going to 
sacrifice himself so that Luke will leave. And in fact, immediately after he dies, the body disappears, but Luke hears this voice. Run, Luke, run. <laughs> but Kenobi even tells Vader, if you strike me down, I only become stronger. Yes. He knows what he's doing. And I have to ask, I know where this is going because I've seen all these, but was Vader not expecting Ben to disappear? The way he kind of kicks the robes, like wears the body when he disappears, was that expected? Or was that always supposed to be a surprise to Vader that Obi-Wan just disappears like that? The fact that he steps on him and everything, I believe... It was a surprise. There's some dialogue in the radio drama, like what kind of trickery is this? Where did you go? So yeah, Vader was not expecting it. He didn't get vaporized. He just magically disappeared into the ether. When Jedi die in the series, their bodies disappear. They don't just leave corpses lying around. Well, in in the original trilogy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what I meant by the series. Okay, interesting. I just assumed it was the way they rigged the effect, that I didn't think we were supposed to think there was nothing in the robe when it fell. I thought we were supposed to think he got touched by the sword and vaporized. I think it becomes more clear later. But yeah, I think this is him becoming a force ghost, as we'll see later, and especially in later movies. He now still exists, but not as a living being, but he's a voice that can speak through the force to Luke. And it's so right that he died, though, honestly. Not only is it just dramatic effect to show their stakes, but... And that's the Campbellian archetype, though. The, the wizard has to die, so the boy has to complete the journey on his own. But it's Ben's fault all this happened. He was Vader's master. Vader turned to evil. So that's a reflection on him? He has to die for that sin. Yeah, I guess you could look at it that way. I think it's right that he created Vader, Vader kills him, and now Vader could possibly be vanquished. He knew he couldn't be the one to defeat his old pupil. That was all just an exercise. I do think it ups the threat level of Vader because this whole time, oh, Obi-Wan, he's tricked the stormtroopers and he has the lightsabers and he's like the old wizard that's so cool. And to see him get defeated, it's, it's what if Tolkien actually did kill off Gandalf? Like that would have been really scary. He always brings Gandalf back, but here- We bring Obi-Wan back. Yeah, yeah it's, the same it's different though. <laughs> it's different. He doesn't bring him back in this one, but it ups Vader's threat level that he was able to defeat this Jedi. Of course, the one thing that I always find so funny, and they didn't change it in the special editions at all, Obi-Wan is going to be the only person in the entire saga who talks to Vader and calls him Darth. Like, yes. that's his name. First name Darth, last name Vader. It's not a title. He's like, only a master of evil, Darth. Alec Guinness kind of has this wry, like, smirk on his face when he says it. I always, like, it feels like he's making fun of him at that point. I wonder if he's uh, taking the whole shoot seriously, but, you know, he seems to be along for the ride. I, but, you know what, I don't want to knock Guinness. I think he, he works here in all of his scenes. I don't feel like there's ever a moment where I don't respect him, where I'm not looking towards him, where he doesn't hold our attention above everyone else on camera. So, yeah, by killing him in this way, it's done a lot of things. It's shocked us. It's given Luke a new motivation. It's given Darth Vader a new sense of menace. And it, yeah, you question what happens next. Suddenly, Luke is reliant. I thought he was supposed to be reliant on inner strength, but really, his inner strength is a literal Obi-Wan Kenobi in his head. 
Well, I think, again, getting into Buddhism, it's about giving up that strength and tapping into the world around you. And that's what Obi-Wan's trying to teach him to do is, yeah, don't rely on yourself. Tap into what's around you. Run. Don't sit here and shoot. Run away and, and gather your strength. And then we get a really good space battle with Han's patter. You know, he's projecting confidence. Oh, the ship will hold together, but he's not quite so sure. And R2-D2's putting out fires and Carrie Fisher's driving the ship. And I love, again, that she's a strong woman. She's the only one smart enough to realize they were let go. I freaking love it. And it was good in the originals and the special editions tweak the effects. Yeah, it's cool. And as a kid, I thought it was way cooler. I'm still enjoying it. But it's adding to the time here. This could be shortened a little. Ultimately, it doesn't matter that they're not going to get shot down because there's been a homing beacon put on the Millennium Falcon. So the Empire could track where the rebel base actually is. But I like so much with what Lucas does. He does come up with amazing visuals. And I love the way the cannons like gyrate when they're firing and, and pulsate. And so, yeah, I like the look of it. As an adult, it does seem to, again, lag a little bit. I don't think I ever get into this movie, ever. I don't think there's any part where I feel like, wow, I'm seized by the moment and I'm suddenly inside the movie. I looked at it like, oh, this is cute. You know, like, oh, that's fun. I like the sounds. I'm enjoying the pageantry of it. But it's uh, more detached, I guess I would say. I don't feel like these action moments are staged in a way that feel any different than if you'd watch a World War II dogfighting movie or Red Tails or what have you. It feels like an antiquated battle that's given a new space futurist makeover. I guess whatever the actors brought, it's on their own strength and not because Lucas was able to direct him to do certain things. But yeah, when Han is like, hold together, baby, like he he's all confident, but then ha expresses this little doubt. There's little moments like that that I really enjoy the acting. But like after the shootout and he has this like bout with Princess Leia and he's like, not me, sister. It goes back into this weird stilted performance. Like the acting is just so uneven. It goes back and forth. And I think it's when they're comfortable, they do something well. But uh, when Lucas is involved, I don't know. It, it just pulls me out at times. And I like Harrison's performance there. Yeah, I, I like Harrison's performance. I feel like he's one of the few performances. He, Alec Guinness... John Williams and C-3PO are the ones where I feel like they wake the movie up and everyone else is just kind of posing. They work because they look right and because they're configured in the right way, but it's not particularly exciting to watch. This is where I'm going to say I prefer the special edition. The fighting in the special edition is so superior to the fighting that they could pull off in the original. And what they pulled off in the original, I watched it second. I'm like, it had been so long because I like watching Blu-rays and high def. So I hadn't seen the originals in maybe a decade. And to go back and watch them and say, wow, they really still pulled off TIE Fighters doing 360 degree rolls. And they pulled off X-Wings flying right at the camera. I mean, the stuff they did was great. The stuff they did with CGI in 97, not obvious and even better. Yeah, I didn't realize how much tweaking they'd done, but the fighting is seamless. There are certain shots where like they're just kind of floating in space with the TIE fighter behind the X-Wing. And yeah, they're very static. They're, there's not a lot of movement. It doesn't seem as dynamic as you would expect a dogfight to be. So I, I'm willing to give it that the special edition probably did this a lot better with CGI. I mean, that's how you would do all this now. That's how we'll see it in the prequels. They do a pretty good job. It doesn't look too bad. 
is what I'll give it. There's times like with the Death Star when they blow something up on the surface. Yeah, it's obviously just a model that they blew an explosion up on, but it still holds up pretty well, especially for a 70s film. Yeah, that's what I'll give it. It was great for the time. The time has passed. The special <laughs> editions, this is an improvement. Yeah, I can't imagine you guys being the effect snobs that you are, that you can't appreciate some of the tweaking here. You, If they had left it alone, and if it was exactly as it was in 77, you guys would be railing on this. Well, no, I watched the exactly as it was in 77. Yeah. And why aren't you railing on this? Because you saw it as a child? I like practical effects, Stuart. I have stood up for practical effects. And I say this doesn't hold up nearly as well as the CGI probably will in 30 years, but it holds up pretty dang good. It was ahead of its time for then. And I would say some of it is kind of dull and moving slow, like Jacob said, and the special editions were better, but there's still some exciting, wow, I can't believe they did that moments for the time. Yeah, I feel like you're being awfully forgiving. If this were some other series you didn't grow up watching, I don't feel like you would be giving this for the time it was good. I think you would be dogging this movie. No, it it holds up. I think it holds up. As it is, though, it's still really good. The bigger screen you can see this on, the better. If they do a re-release of A New Hope before Episode 7, go. I don't care how many times you've seen it. If it's in a full theater You get your butt there. Bigger is better for this. And it is long. I like that there's multiple attacks to try to do it. The Y-Wings go down the trench and they can't even get that far because Vader shoots them down. And then the first group of X-Wings with their leader go down. Red Leader actually gets the shot off and with the tracking computer he misses and then Vader shoots him down. It's just really upping the tension that this cannot be stopped and the ultimate ticking clock. The Death Star can get halfway across the galaxy in a few minutes, but it's going to take about 30 to circle around the planet and get that shot. And so they have to hurry and blow that thing up. And then all of these people, they're friends of his from back on Tatooine. Only Biggs, only the mustached guy. And that's the scene that was added back in. And yet it was edited funny because there's a scene where Red Leader says, I fought with your father in the Clone Wars. Well, Lucas didn't want to commit to that. So he cut that scene out. So there's somebody quite obviously walking around a jump cut in the dialogue. But yes, this would have paid off more had we seen Biggs in the beginning and Because Luke gets so upset that Biggs dies in space, he did add their reunion back for the special edition. So basically, Luke doesn't do anything unless you kill somebody. It's like, kill my uncles, okay, I'll go. Kill Ben, okay, I'll go. Kill my friend, all right, I'll hit the target. But this is where Han gets his redemptive moment. He walked away with the money and, you know, we're led to believe, I don't think anyone did, that he wouldn't join the fight. I did as a child. Well, I don't even think I noticed that he walked away as a child, but... I'm kind of with Stuart. I don't know that I noticed. And by the time I was re-watching this movie, I knew it so well. Yeah. yeah. But what was he doing? Just hiding by the sun, I guess? You know, whatever. We, <laughs> he helps the movie. Anytime he shows up, this movie is more exciting. I don't feel like just Luke with Ben in his ear is all of that exciting. I mean, the visuals are exciting, but I just don't feel like it's a dramatic enough situation for me. But when Han flies in, uh, yeah, I, I feel he brings a levity that I can appreciate. He infuses the stiltedness of Star Wars with something that feels fresh. 
But I feel like that's going back to that Seven Samurai. Like when, yeah, you have the original two. Eh, it's when you start putting the group together. It's when you get Mifuni's character with his ridiculously long sword. And he's the comic, like he's like Han Solo of that film. Like, yeah, I feel like when the characters are together or there's more than just like Luke on the screen, it does work better for me. And I think that if you're not getting that excitement off Mark Hamill and the shots of him, Williams is really getting me into the moment. I mean, again, it's not his best composition, but the way he ramps up these crescendos time after time as things get more heated. And he wrote like a 12-minute piece for this space battle. You can listen to it, and I can listen to it and see the entire space battle and recite the dialogue because the music cues are so damn important here that they're like dialogue to me. And I feel like it's a call-and-response type thing between the visual effects, John Williams music, all the pilots dying. To this day, I still get tense. Wow. I could have cut out the last half hour. I could have literally had them escape uh, hitting a, a self-destruct button and it going boom that way. I, I never needed this battle. I never really liked it. Even as a kid, I never really got into this battle. It always felt long. I always felt antsy at this point. I wanted to leave. It's hard to say. I think this is my favorite part. I agree. It feels like it could have ended when they escape the Death Star. I mean, that's such a monumental thing to do. The movie could end there. That it doesn't elevate Star Wars from really good to really great. For me, what strains credibility, I'm willing to go with whatever space aliens or whatever in the series. It is this ending that feels so tacked on. After they blow up the Death Star, we get Luke, Leia, and Han. They're like arm in arm skipping down the aisle. I'm like, no, she's like a really important leader of the rebellion. Like she's off in a committee meeting planning their next attack. But no, the rebellion's going to stop to have a, I think you called it out, Stuart, an Olympic medal ceremony. <laughs> it does. You know, that would have been going on at the time. It would have been fresh in our minds that, you know, yeah, it just, it, it, he even looks like uh, an athlete from the 70s, Mark Hamill. I just feel like it looked like the Olympics here. It didn't feel like they were in space anymore. I like this end scene. Again, I called this out earlier. This is John Williams. Honestly, it may be his best, although that original Star Wars theme is so good, but I just love the music here. Yeah, it's pretty dang good. You say that Carrie Fisher should be off in a meeting. Tell me that if her life wasn't a fraction of a second away from dead, and then somebody heroically saves the entire rebellion... They're not going to take a moment to reward them. You got to keep morale up among people. You got to have a few attaboys to keep people motivated for your rebellion. You have to celebrate your victories because, let's face it, they're terrorists. They are the underdogs. Their victories have been few and far between. This is only their second victory ever. It's a pretty dang big victory to blow up a big Death Star. Yeah, you don't think that that would deserve a award ceremony of giving medals no, I, I go into hiding. I get everyone into hiding because the Empire is going to be pissed. <laughs> I don't know. It feels like they won the war, honestly, as a child and even now. Yeah, and I think that's the feeling they're going for. We saw Darth Vader. He didn't die here. He spun away in a ship and... Yeah, I don't get the sense that there was anybody left. From this movie, I thought that it was a bunch of old, angry British hammer horror actors who were, you know, on this one Death Star. And when it went boom, we know Peter Cushing went up with it. You know, even though he's presented with plans, he's like, oh, by the way, we looked the, the blueprints over and yeah, they can actually destroy us. He's like, no, I'm not leaving. In our moment of triumph? I thought they all went down. I, honest to God, the way that it plays is that only one person got away. And so that it, I didn't know there was an empire to strike back at the end of this movie. I agree that Lucas doesn't really drive it home. But yeah, 
if this was the only movie that Lucas ever got to make of the series, if it was the flop most people working on it believed it would be, it's a satisfying conclusion. I will give you that. Yes. If this was the only one, this ending probably would not bug me as much. Yeah, no, I think it's the right ending for the, it's the right tone for this movie. This movie is kind of formal and a little stilted. And so that it would end with a very obvious on the nose and we all won. Yay. Kind of moment is absolutely right for this film. It, there's no need to be vague. I mean, this is clear cut, good guy, bad guy stuff. And I love that this is the scene they used to tell us R2-D2 isn't dead. He was shot by Vader. Vader almost shot Luke. He hit R2. And this is where you see after fighting the whole movie, 3PO actually cares about that little astromech offering to do a organ donation to save the little droid. <laughs> I don't think they're running low on circuits. I don't know why he feels like he needs to give his own. But yes, it's because he wants to be the one to help his friend. That's nice. Yeah. And so he comes back and everybody laughs as he makes his little... Boop, boop noises. It's it's cool. Chewbacca not getting a medal though. That is still a little bit jerky. He didn't. No. That's come on. I could tell you're not a fan, Stuart, because that is like <laughs> one of the big controversies in the Star Wars universe. Who shot first, and why didn't Chewie get a medal? And around the time of the special editions during the MTV Movie Awards, they actually had Carrie Fisher come on and put a medal around Chewbacca's neck. I don't know if it was Peter Mayhew in the costume, but. Chewbacca came and he finally got his medal after 20 years. But in this film, nah, Han gets the medal and Chewie kind of roars because I think he's pissed he didn't get some medal. Yeah, of course he <laughs> would be pissed. I'm pissed for him. That's ridiculous. What? I mean, he was flying the ship and stuff. It wasn't like he was just hanging out in the back. I always took it as he was the reason Han went back. Because when Han says, I'm taking my reward and leaving, what good's a reward if you're not around to using it? Chewie roar something and Han's like ah shut up I'm gonna take my stuff and so I've always thought Chewbacca was his conscience and Chewbacca nagged him to hang out and come back <laughs> well yeah how's Chewie supposed to explain that to Lumpy when he goes home <laughs> I get that joke I know what that means we'll get there in a long time so Jacob Stewart do you recommend the greatest film of all time Star Wars <laughs> Jacob I'm not going to say this is the greatest film of all time. I, it's influence, maybe. It is up there as one of the most influential movies. One of my favorites, it's in the top 10, definitely. Watching it with the now playing eyes, you, you always see things a little bit differently, but it's so hard with this one because I, probably the movie I have seen the most times ever, <laughs> like triple digits. As I'm watching it, you know, as an adult and the pacing is off. That's probably my biggest complaint. More than the acting is just the pacing clunky at times. It doesn't move as smoothly as I would like, but it still holds up. It's considered one of the greats for a reason because it does hold up. It is so imaginative and it does take detours where you don't necessarily need to go, but you're going to see weird looking aliens or just all these different ideas going on, which I like it. They use the term used universe, lived in universe. Yeah, it does feel like that. It feels like there are so many backstories going on. No wonder it spawned so many novels that no longer could count, but I'm sure they'll write all new ones. But yeah, strong, strong recommend for just Star Wars. We're not going to say episode four. We're not going to say A New Hope. Just Star Wars recommend. Stuart. I want to start this off with just an apology. Uh, this movie made me feel like I was a terrible person. I realized that when we review lots of movies prior to this, that we go in with sledgehammers, looking for problems, finding them usually, tearing things apart. And I realized that we could do this to this movie and leave it in absolute rubble. 
But that would be horribly cruel to the child in all of us that wants to still love it and remember it for what it is. I am apologizing to every Marvel fan, to every Ninja Turtle fan, to every younger person who holds on to their films that were influential to them, and I took a whack at it. I am sorry, because I realize we can be awfully cruel in our dissection. And honest to God, this movie isn't nearly as good as hundreds of movies that we've turned into rubble. It is kind of a shoddy film. There are a lot of technical problems with the way that it's directed, with the way that it's written. It's kind of a mess. But there is a charm to that mess. And I think that some of that charm stems from childhood. But I also think some of it is from the fact that we have a really an imaginative guy who was allowed to do whatever the hell he wanted and really told a nice story about faith and believing in yourself. There's a nice, simple moral to this movie that kind of trumps anything a hater could say about what doesn't work. I do feel like this movie, honest to God, is not that much fun for me to watch. I think that it has a charm, it's amusing, it's a recommend, but I don't get into it. I don't love this universe, I don't want to be there, but I really do appreciate watching fans like you guys have fun, regress to childhood, to find that magic in it is a pleasure in and of itself. I do think that younger generations may laugh at this. I do think that there are some audiences that are not going to see those action scenes, Arnie, as action-packed and great. They look stilted, and there is a stilted aspect of Star Wars I've always rejected. From my earliest age, I've always felt there was something a little boring about the universe, but it's also part of its charm. It's vanilla, but who doesn't like eating vanilla every now and then? I think that can be its own pleasure. As popular as this movie is, it hasn't lost its distinctive flavor. So how do I feel about the movie? I think it's going to get better. My memory is, is that the next movie is a far better made film and will take the ideas of this movie to another level. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how much of that is true. This movie, I think, is a recommend, but not a strong one. And I honestly think that if it didn't have the sequels, and if it didn't have the merchandising, and if it didn't predicate on my generation the way that it did with a pervasive, you can have Star Wars anything in your life, I don't know that people would feel as strongly about it as they do. When you look at the movie, it's quaint, it's cute, it's occasionally moving, it's a recommend. It is a good movie, but I just, I don't see it living up to the legacy. I love Star Wars because when I watch it, I think I am a kid again. I just go back and remember the excitement. I didn't need to watch either version of that movie for this review. I rewatched them for this because I love the movies. I want to rewatch them. And it was hard to keep the now playing classes on. Yes, there are problems. I mentioned the escape pod. There's a lot of film guffaws. There's internal plot holes just to this movie, let alone when we start bringing in sequels and prequels. Why does R5-D4 blow up? Why does C-3PO not know who Princess Leia is? There's a lot of stuff in here that doesn't quite make sense. And yes, we could pick that apart, but I have to give this a strong, strong recommend, not only for being a really good film. I agree. I think that some young people may be put off by the hokey effects. I guess go see the special edition then. The special edition writes a lot of those wrongs. And yeah, Mark Hamill's performance isn't the greatest. I think Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Peter Cushing, Alec Guinness, Anthony Daniels, James Earl Jones all make up for that. And I don't think Mark Hamill's especially bad here. But 
Not only does this film launch the modern era of the spectacle film and the event film, but it influenced so many people to go and do other creative things. This is the film that made a lot of today's great directors want to go into film. So many people in all of the now playing bonus features I've watched over the past eight years have said they saw Star Wars, it made them want to get into movie making. Its legacy cannot be contested. It is the defining film of my lifetime and every film that came after that I loved. And it pushed movie technology into a realm that had never existed before. Your beloved childhood movie, Stuart Alien, wouldn't exist if Star Wars hadn't come first. It is an exceptionally strong recommend. Even if you don't get enthralled by it, it is such a necessary film to see to evaluate the modern blockbuster film. It's an astounding piece of work from a director who I am not enthralled with. It, it was certainly his best directed film ever. I can't speak highly enough about it. I can't speak enough about it, which is why I have an entire other podcast devoted <laughs> to Star Wars. And I love that he created this modular universe that can expand and grow as he makes more films and that people were able to write all the comics and books in. It's a universe people want to live in or at least visit pretty regularly. I'm one of them. The strongest recommend I may have ever given on Now Playing. I, I feel like Star Wars is unique in of itself, but I do have to wonder if some of its uniqueness has to do with the fact that we were coming out of a feel-bad war. It offered a positive portrayal of space. It offered a positive portrayal of, of what movies could do. It catered to children audiences when kids' movies at the time sucked. I do feel like opportunity struck and Star Wars was there for them. It was the right film at the right time, but the fact that it holds up as well as it does is a marvel, you know, and I think that is reflected by its footprint on cinema and that people try to give that Star Wars roller coaster ride in movies. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to test this theory. I am going to watch Flash Gordon, which was the bomb that Ooh, came out the same year that was the movie that apparently Lucas wanted to make, which is clearly the inspiration for what Star Wars did. What's the difference? I'm wondering. I, I've got to know. Go watch it. That movie's a stinker. I, <laughs> I like Ted, but it's love of Flash Gordon. I cannot abide. All right. We'll see. You may be right. I can recognize one thing. Star Wars is more than a space adventure because of the way that it taps into spirituality and whatever your religion is, including atheism. There's a, there's a Han Solo there for you, too. I think it does reflect back on you and it has a nutritious quality to its spiritual longing that I think is different than a lot of just basic space elements. I think that might be what's going to give it the edge over Flash Gordon. I'm going to bet that Sam Jones doesn't have a whole lot of uh, uh, spiritual longings in that film. But we'll see. I'm going to watch it and compare notes. I'll be back next week with my thoughts. But yes, there's so much more Star Wars to come. And we're not doing a books and nachos, but there is a Star Wars Action News Book Club episode devoted to the A New Hope novelization and the differences and all that you can find it at sw action news take a listen to that if you want to hear my thoughts and my interview with alan dean foster about novelizing it and his interaction with george lucas during the time and all of that 
But yeah, I mean, the film is what it is, and I'm glad that we focused on it, but I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops. I do feel like this is a property that will probably get better as a franchise than as a standalone episode. Well, we will find out next week when we return with The Empire Strikes Back. But in the meantime, there is another podcast we're doing. We are continuing our donation series with... This was a Japanese film-inspired movie. Let's just do an actual Japanese movie, Battle Royale 2. Yes, and the sequel to 2000's Battle Royale. It's the kickoff to our Silver Level Fall donation that will get a little more familiar. That may be a name that people don't recognize. You don't know Battle Royale 1 or 2, but I'm sure you've heard of Hunger Games. And this is sort of the series that, well, depending on who you ask, either inspired or just coincidentally had the same thematic concerns as the popular Jennifer Lawrence series that is concluding in November. We're building up to that. That'll be six movies for a $10 donation, and uh, we will break it up. We won't get the Hunger Games until the start of November, but you'll get Battle Royale 1 and 2 this Friday. Yes, and for people who didn't join us for our Transporter Retrospective, let's outline our entire Fall 2015 donation series. It's our biggest ever. It's honestly more podcasts than we will ever offer again at these donation levels. There's six podcasts for silver, 15 podcasts for gold, 20 movie reviews for platinum donors. And it's across an entire breadth of movie genres. For those who donate $10 or more, you get our silver donation package, which is our Hunger Games retrospective series. They're going to be coming out in November. We're going to be reviewing all four Hunger Games films, leading up to the review of The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2. And you also get two reviews of Battle Royale, Battle Royale 1, Battle Royale 2. But if you go $25 or more, you get our gold retrospective series, which gets you those six podcasts with silver, plus nine more movie reviews. All the films directed by Quentin Tarantino, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill Volume 1, Kill Bill Volume 2, Death Proof, his half of the Grindhouse films, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, we're all leading up to this winter's release of Hateful Eight, coming out on Christmas Day in select theaters and in January across the country. We've had so many requests to review Quentin Tarantino, and with Star Wars, we had to make a choice, Tarantino or Star Wars, and there were just more films in Tarantino than we've ever done for a donation series. But we wanted to review Tarantino. We know a lot of you wanted to hear our reviews of these Tarantino films. And so if you can help out our show with $25 or more, that's 15 bonus podcasts. And if you'd really go that extra mile and do $35 or more, you get our Platinum Retrospective series, which includes everything in silver, everything in gold, and then five extra movie reviews. Again, all Tarantino-related films, but not the ones he directed. True Romance, one of Tarantino's first scripts, but directed by Tony Scott. Natural Born Killers, another early Tarantino script. This one, very controversial, directed by Oliver Stone. Four Rooms, the anthology film where Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino each directed a segment of the film. From Dusk Till Dawn, the Robert Rodriguez vampire film that Quentin Tarantino wrote and starred in. 
And then you get the full Grindhouse review, which includes not only Tarantino's Death Proof, but also Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror and all of the trailers and the entire Grindhouse experience. So that is 20 movie reviews for just a donation of $35 or more, and your money goes to keep this show operating. We are expecting the Star Wars show to really push our servers to its limits. We've been upgrading it all year long using funds given to us by donors. And even if you're not a fan of Tarantino, if you're not a fan of Hunger Games, we'd really appreciate your support if you enjoy the Star Wars reviews. Because without listener support, we can't do the show we do for free every Tuesday. So check out all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com. Click the banner at the top that says Fall Donation Series, Tarantino and Hunger Games. You'll find all the details, the release schedule, but we have bonus podcasts coming out every Friday, starting last Friday and ending January 15th with our review of Hateful Eight. So thank you again for your support. We greatly appreciate anything you can donate. So Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me and may the podcast be with you always. Under control, situation normal. What happened? Uh, had a slight weapon malfunction, but uh, everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? Who is this? What's your operating number? Boring uh, conversation anyway. Luke, we're gonna have company. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing Star Wars retrospective series. That's it. We did it. We did it. <laughs> We hope you've enjoyed the show. You know, sometimes I amaze even myself. That doesn't sound too hard. If you like Star Wars, join Arnie and Marjorie at SWActionNews.com for Star Wars Action News, a podcast dedicated to Star Wars toys, books, games, and more. You've taken your first step into a larger world. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. He says the restraining boat has short-circuited his recording system. He suggests that if you remove the boat, he might be able to play back the entire recording. In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find hundreds of in-depth movie reviews, including every film in the Star Trek, Terminator, 2001, Back to the Future, Batman, and James Bond film series. Where are those transmissions and while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can share your opinions of these films with the hosts and other listeners. You'll never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. You must be cautious. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Who's the more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him? I felt a great disturbance in the force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to help keep the show going. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You must do what you feel is right, of course.
You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. I don't know who you are or where you came from, but from now on, you do as I tell you, okay? A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Hey! You can show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. But I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. A link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. Don't underestimate the force. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Can you speak, Bocce? Of course I can, sir. It's like a second language to me. I'm a All right, shut up. I'll take this. Shutting up, sir. Now Playing is not affiliated with Lucasfilm, 20th Century Fox, or Disney. Star Wars and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Lucasfilm Limited, and no infringement is intended. Let's just say we'd like to avoid any imperial entanglements. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Force can have a strong influence on the weak minded. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Are they away? They've just made the jump into hyperspace. You're sure the homing beacon is secure aboard their ship? I'm taking an awful risk, Vader. This had better work. Did I say Lucas? Lucas and Luke. I never even put that together before. Yeah, he definitely (laughs) named this after himself. And if you see the early concept drawings, it has a beard. It looks like him. It is basically him. Oh, my God. That's, well, you know, lots of artists do that. But, wow, I just never, I never saw him as Luke. (laughs) (laughs) Curse my metal body. I wasn't fast enough. There are some dirty lines in here. You came in that thing? You're braver than I thought. (laughs) That's dirty? Think about it. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not going there. You came in that thing. Yeah, no, You're braver I, I, than I thought. Did yeah. I go step down? <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, I get it. So I know. Did they use that line in the porn I parody? I think they Jacob? did. Now that I'm thinking about it, <laughs> that's a missed opportunity. Yeah. That that one was. There's a lot of missed opportunities in that one. Well, maybe we'll review that as a bonus or something. <laughs> <laughs>